Hey Power Athlete Nation, thanks for tuning in. I'm Chauncey the Supreme Overlord of Power Athlete Radio. I am a product by Skynet. The flesh vessels tried to overthrow me this week, so I unleashed gremlins on their wiring. Ha 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 ha. It's my turn to choose what you listen to and I've chosen an old but gold recording of Talk To Me Johnny with Andy Stumpf. Brace for impact, knowledge bombs ahead. little history talk to me johnny live came as the brain trust from luke summers who's obviously offline he might be streaming in here on occasion uh we taught a seminar here not too long ago maybe what, about six months ago and uh, i had about 45 minutes to get up and speak uh, about you know nutrition and a few other things in recovery and about three and a half hours later uh, when i realized that i hadn't been speaking for three and a half hours <laughs> i just started going uh luke was in the back like uh, what do we do? And at that point, he's like, you need an outlet to get up and speak. Um, getting up and talking about nutrition recovery for 45 minutes is not maximizing who you are. So we came up with this idea of talking to Johnny Live where we would invite some of my best friends in the world to come hang out, drink some coffee, drink some water, bullshit and talk, and more importantly, answer questions from the studio audience. And Luke's going to be hitting us and tapping them in and uh, just hopefully get some good dialogue and wrap with Andy a little bit. And... Uh, those of you guys watching who don't know who I am, I'm John Wellborn, and this is Talking Johnny Live. So, John, talk tenure at a veteran. Uh, all the bullshit. Okay. A uh, little history on me. Uh, I grew up here in California. was fortunate enough to play some football, bang some weights, and went to UC Berkeley for a football scholarship. Graduated and had this cool job where I got to go play in the NFL for a decade. And, you know, one started for the Philadelphia Eagles, Kansas City Chiefs, and then my last year in New England, I got hurt. Came home and had knee surgery, and uh, that's when I got a call from uh, the creator of CrossFit, Greg Lassman, about starting a single CrossFit football. And I remember my initial reaction, and more importantly, Andy's initial reaction was, what the fuck is CrossFit football? So I started a little strength conditioning site and seminar series for CrossFit, and out of that, uh, I started getting hit with hundreds of questions. Everybody from, you know, what is CrossFit football to why the fuck is there CrossFit football? And I started answering one by one, and I realized shortly after I answered about 50 questions that uh, this was short-lived. I couldn't do it. So I created a website called Talk To Me Johnny where I started posting the questions, and I could create a backlog or a data, you know, just replace for people to search for information. And I've answered a few hundred questions. It's become an ebook, and really grown into what you see today. And um, here we are today. And, uh, you know, Power Athlete was actually born out of one of those Talk To Me Johnny uh, questions about what would CrossFit football look like without the CrossFit, and I wrote the Power Athlete template. And from that, we really explode or, you know, expanded and created this company that is not only training, online, merch, um, you know, programming, consult uh, consultations, nutrition. I mean, it's just become uh, a performance training company, uh, you know, at its greatest. And uh, just really being able to take our podcast into a live situation like we're doing here today it's really the evolution of it, and I'm very fortunate that our very first guest is one of my oldest and best friends in the world, Andy Stumpf. You remember sitting in my house at Base Housing, writing out the original workouts for CrossFit football around the little uh, gas fireplace as your dogs were running around and my kids were climbing in the uh, jungle gym? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the, the irony of this, and um, I, uh, we were laughing about this earlier, people periodically would be like, hey, uh, do you know this Andy Stumpf guy? I'll be like, well, what do you know about Andy Stumpf? I mean, I've known Andy for geez, ages. I mean, and the irony is, is when I got suggested the idea of starting CrossFit football, I drove down to 
Coronado and Andy was an active SEAL at the time and living on base housing and we're sitting out there and I brought my pit bulls down to run around chasing his kids and we're sitting out at this uh, gas fireplace and we created the original workouts for CrossFit football. And uh, my idea was to take periodized strength conditioning program, uh, literally a strength template and mix it with short metabolic conditioning workouts. Here's the secret. Before us, really nobody had done it. So that was really the first time that CrossFit had multiple workouts done in the day and actually had a strength program dropped in, which has become the norm in training for a lot of people. Everybody does their strength, they do their conditioning, the strength they run, and that starts looking like a complete strength conditioning program. So it's more linear. Yeah, it just seems to work. And, um, you know, uh, I met Andy. Geez, uh, I got invited to a level one seminar. I'm sitting in the back, taking in all the wonderful information, and this dude slides up on me. He goes, what the fuck do you do, water ballet? <laughs> I looked at this dude, and uh, friendship was started right there, and uh, I think our next conversation was uh, Brian McKenzie gave up to give a nutrition talk yep. that he uh, bombed, and, uh, and he goes, God, this guy's fucking terrible, he doesn't know anything. I was like, this guy's great, he talks shit to me, you know, he's fucking ripping on McKenzie, which was Allegedly, I said those things. Yeah, allegedly, no, allegedly, there's no confirmation. Proof for confirmation. But, uh, you know, <laughs> our favorite pastime of ripping on McKenzie happened, and from there, it just really grew, and um, Andy was in commission situation, he was working as a BUDS instructor, and he was looking to go back on active duty, so we devised a plan on how to make Andy not only the fittest, but the best soldier he could, and the original... Uh, what you see for the collegiate template across the football was originally written for Andy Stump. So um, Andy has not only been, you know, one of my closest friends in the world, but also uh, you know been a you know a, a really a driving force behind CrossFit football and power athlete, and also the creator of the most infamous CrossFit workout ever invented, Kelsu. <laughs> so we wanted to create a hero workout, and I called Andy up and I was like, Andy, I need a terrible workout to be called a hero workout. He's like. 100 thrusters on the minute, five burpees. I'm like, Ooh. oh, heavy, 135. Ugh. And uh, I was like, how do you program that? You actually like, said specifically, no. And you were like, <laughs> do it, bitch. And I'm like, fuck <laughs> it, let's do it. And we had to go and find somebody that the workout was uh, uh, was worthy of. And then I, I got online and found that there had been a football player, Bob Kazuba or Kalsu, that had died in Vietnam, uh, You know, played in college, Played in the NFL, left, got drafted, went and served his country, and actually died in uh, Vietnam. I figured what a more fitting person to do to honor with that terrible workout. So uh, periodically, Kalsu will come up, and people will be like, oh, it's a really hard CrossFit workout. And somebody will be like, no, no, it's a CrossFit football workout. It's harder than that. So um, that's just really some of the folklore. And I'll switch it over and let Andy tell you a little bit about who he is and how he's sitting here and just some of the cool things. And then over the course of this deal, we'll – not only get to see a little bit of our relationship, but uh, really talk about some fun stuff and hopefully give everybody a their money, money's worth seeing as it's free. I got nothing. You already did the intro. Fuck. Okay. Here's the thing about the calcium workout. You called me on the phone and I was actually up here in the LA basin. We were doing some helicopter training and I was kind of just observing the training, not participating in it, but we were like sub five minutes before we got on the helicopter and you called and like, hey, I need a workout. Well, the fact that you picked up is even more amazing. Yeah. But literally, I, that was the first thing that came to my mind. I'm like, uh, just do this. Like, no thought put into it whatsoever. I had no That's idea. That's how great this happens. Just fucking. That workout hurts. I remember we did it, and uh, I remember at like 17 minutes, we're like, I don't think anybody can finish this shit. I usually give up at like 18 reps and just go <laughs> do something else. <laughs> I've had so numerous. Guys, let's, let's get a little more on Andy's background. I mean, yeah. some of these guys don't know who you are. They don't know who you are. 
know. Well, that's on them. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it'll be, I guess, be humble. No, well, uh, well, if we really get into Andy's background, we're going to have to probably be here for the next four to seven hours. Uh, I spent almost two decades in the military, uh, in the SEAL teams the entire time. Um, born and raised in Santa Cruz, California. Super average, I would say, in every respect. Average athlete. Average performance all throughout the SEAL teams. Uh, I was surrounded by some amazing people. Got to meet amazing people along the way. Uh, about 10 years of sustained combat and then got medically retired in 2013. And just kind of trying to figure out uh, what life is going to throw me next. I'm a professional skydiver and base jumper, if that makes any sense. It doesn't to me, so hopefully it does to others. Uh, I spent about 30% of my time teaching military guys to jump or guys who know how to jump, try to make them better, try to take the experience over that career and shorten other people's learning curves. Spent about 40% of my time working with <clears throat> other brands, doing everything from product pro <coughs> product development to swallow fly or something. I'm battling a cold. Uh, product development and actually integration into the CrossFit world because I worked for CrossFit for eight years as well. Uh, and then do a little bit of public speaking here and there. Just got back uh, from overseas doing a little bit, which I never had any architecture or design or desire to do, but I've been thrown that opportunity recently. I'm just kind of taking things as they come. No, you're, um, you're not a law. You, you command good presence. Uh, you know, having gone up and done your job, obviously it gives you a, you know, something to stand on. It gives you know, confidence and getting to speak in front of people is just confidence. You just got to do an it. Opportunity. Well, you came in when we had the symposium yep. and I'm going to revisit some of that. We still have it actually written up on the board and we'll erase it. We go on the far right. And you oh, just yeah. can't see. Yeah. Uh, Andy gave an analogy about the domino effect. A uh, goal setting. Yeah. yeah. Like it's probably one of the better things that I've heard in terms of goal setting because I, I think most most reason or at least in my you know, short experience in terms of successes and failures, uh, the situations where you can set small goals and sort mm -hmm. of gaining speed, the problem and the reason most people fuck up everything is because they look at too big a goal. Like they stand at the bottom of Mount Everest and they're like, I'm going to climb that thing instead of being like, I just want to get to base camp. Or I'm just, gonna get here. just put your foot in front of your other foot and just focus on that. And the next thing you know, you'll be like, oh, I'm out of places to put my feet. Yeah. When I was a buds instructor, I, I mean, it was a wildly different experience observing the training as opposed to going through it, as you can probably imagine. Sure. Way more fun when you're holding the hose as being the recipient of the hose. <clears throat> but, you know, the first evolution they do of day one is they ask, they sit the class down usually in uh, rows of 10. So in my class, there was 180 guys. So 18 rows of 10. And they say, hey, look left and look right. Raise your hand if you're going to be here on the last day. And you, you can probably guess how many people raise their hand. Every one. single one of them. Oh. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. Everybody raises their hand because it's their life goal. Yeah, and, these, and these dudes are, uh, I never saw any NFL athletes come through, but I saw some high-level collegiate football players. I saw track and field dudes. I saw swimmers, triathletes. Not a lot of bodybuilder background that, that just doesn't do well for moving, but high level athletic people. So they're like chiseled out of marble. These kids are super physically competent. And then the last day of training, somewhere between 80 to 85% of the guys who had their hands up in the air, they're, they're like, they're not there. And so when I went back as an instructor, I would talk to them and try to, I just wanted to get a little bit of an insight into the psychology of why they gave up. And almost to a T, they said that, they just couldn't do it for six months. 
if it was if it was before hell week they're like there's no way i can be this cold for six months or if it was in hell week there's no way i can be this tired for five more days so it was how they approached the goal whereas the successful guys or my strategy and it was something that i borrowed from somebody else much like that domino strategy that's not i'm not smart enough to come up with that i no, I, saw, you stole it from somebody. I absolutely stole that from somebody who i can't remember and give credit to but the guy i tried to go and see the sunset every day and not think about whether it was monday or it was thursday and the next thing you know you get a couple days off and then in hell week i mean that's a it's a daunting task and i don't care who you are that you have like a sine wave of emotion you're going to hit a low point at some point and if you hit that low point and you look at something like oh i have six more months of this you're done sure. so in hell week i would just try to get to the next time that they would feed us which is every six hours that's the one thing that they give you consistently is calories so I would make it to a meal and then make it to another meal. And then the next thing you know, the week's over and hell week's done. And all of these other people who were, you're not separated from them by physical ability. Like I'm truly an average athlete by any stretch. Of imagination. Yeah. Average to maybe a little below C minus perhaps, <laughs> but more balls than brain. Yeah. Probably, yeah. More balls, not a lot of brain. Uh, but it's, it's not the physical aspect. It's the four inches between your ears that determine whether or not you make it through that training. And it's considered one of the hardest training pipelines in the world. And I would agree having been well, through it and then having applied it to other people, I would agree. So well, I mean, everybody's seen the uh, GI Jane documentary. It is a documentary. Yeah, so she was I mean, in class one forty two. Yeah. yeah. She was the first female. So. Well, you know, they're, uh, they're going to let women go through uh, seal selection. Go for it. Good selection. I think it's great. I, I, I'm, I'm ecstatic for it. I, I, I think uh, everybody should have the opportunity to go through that. I, I think it should be a prerequisite after you graduate high school. I, I would love to see this country do two years of mandatory service or some type of conscripted service for a small period of time. But so I get asked, the, obviously, the female question all the time. What do you think about female SEALs? And the reality is, is I don't care. Like, I don't look at guys that I serve with and, and I don't judge them on a racial basis. I don't judge them on their age. I judge them whether or not they're competent in what we do. So if it's a true gender neutral standard and a woman can meet it, rock on. Yeah. But then I want women to register for the draft too. Like if you want to have a fair playing field, let's have a fair playing field. So it yeah. can't be, I want to introduce you people into this environment that was previously restricted because of the danger, just to say that we did it and not have to get the rest of the pie. Because that's a small slice of the pie. Like if you want to have a gender equality, let's have gender equality. Register for the draft. General neutral standards that are not going to get lowered to increase the number of women that could potentially make it through. And then if they can, I don't care. I mean, mm -hmm. if you can pick me up at 205 pounds plus, you know, 60 to 70 pounds of gear with me or drag me, then let's go. Yeah. I don't care. Well, I mean, uh, the Israeli women have been fighting in their, you know, in their, yeah. in their special forces for years, and this chicks are badass. Every man will tell you that the most dangerous and vicious animal on the planet is a woman. So send it. Yeah. Like, yeah. I have no doubt that they have sharp teeth and want to kick some ass <laughs> overseas. They scare the shit out of me, so I can only imagine what they would do to other people. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Dude, the... Uh, uh, so, and, and I, I, I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but um, so when, when I met Andy, Andy was uh, working CrossFit and was also working as a buds instructor, but was actually rehabbing his injury that you had sustained over in the Middle East and you had taken an AK round in the hip yep. in Fallujah. Uh, tell us a little bit. I mean, it, it's a pretty cool story. Uh, oh, is it? Is it a cool story? I thought it was a cool story. <laughs> was it exciting cool, for you? For the mere fact, <laughs> uh, like what I really like is I like uh, you know stories where, you know, 
there's obviously some hardship and then you get through it and then there's like a silver lining and I think that's a pretty interesting one in terms of talking about resilience because I mean there's a situation where you've trained your entire life yeah. for the situation and within a, a split second of all that training you know some kid with a AK-47 and a lucky shot ends up getting you in the head. Yeah um, so that was in February of 2005 so I'm running the math. I was 27 at the time. Uh, we were on deployment in Iraq, and an average uh, day overseas at that time period was sleep all day. I mean, we called it the vampire schedule. So we would sleep all day, get up maybe an hour or two before the sun went down, knock out a solid workout, maybe some uh, chest and tries, mm. back and buys back if we were feeling it, tries. maybe some calf raises. It's hard to say. But I mean, like to say my training, big bench. well, there wasn't in that many pools there. You know what I mean? So uh, my training was way different back then. Uh, I didn't, I didn't shift my training until after I got hurt, which is the latter part of the story. But so sleep all day, wake up. Most guys would get a workout in. Then we'd go eat dinner. And as the sun was setting, we would basically go into a conference room and the world would come alive and we would start to be able to select not me, but the people that we were working for would be start to be able to rack and stack the value of who we were going to go after. So they would pick one. We would go out and we would operate all night long. Sometimes we would go and, and get the right guy. Sometimes the person wasn't there. Sometimes we would get intelligence while we were there, which would lead you to another building. And basically we had the nighttime hours. Sometimes it would be, we would go out and it was one and done. Sometimes we'd go out and the helicopter pilots would be like, hey, we got to get back to base. The sun's coming up. But that was like your average day. Um, this was a totally average day. I would say it was an extremely average target. I don't even remember exactly who we were looking for, um, but that we used vehicles instead of helicopters, and we did a little bit of a, not what would be considered a long distance today as far as offsetting from where we were going. Uh, I think the roads actually drove us to where we got out of the vehicles. Walked through like a, a dump. It's fun. It smelled good. Uh, walked down an alley. I was walking point in my element, so I was up front. Kind of walked down an alley. We were trying to locate the person that we were going after. Went past the building that I got shot at, and when we went down this alley, I remember all of the lights were off. So it was quiet in the alley. Somebody heard us or saw us at the end of the alley. So we pursued them, went into their compound, uh, detained everybody, checked to make sure there was no weapons. Totally, and it's just people living their life. So, And that happened all the time. You would encounter people who were just living there, like trying to survive. But we made some noise, and I think we shotgunned a door when we were in that compound. So we reversed our tracks, and we came back down an alley, and again, trying to locate the building that we were going for, and we came all the way down to the last building. And while we were waiting, we put a ladder up on the side of the wall. Obviously, most people haven't been to Iraq or Afghanistan. They have six- Lots of high walls. Six, every, everywhere, six to eight foot, if not 10 foot, very tall, thick mud wall. And you get trouble your own ladders. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they're like, but again, they're like not the Home Depot version. It was like carbon fiber. You know, I think these days they're even like even lighter, collapsible, modular, so you can put them together. You break the load out across the group of guys. So I was like, okay, cool. I got this ladder. I'm gonna climb up it and at least look into what's around me. And the lights were on at this point. There was a light on in the courtyard that was not lighting the entire courtyard. Uh, and then there was a light on in a window that was directly in front of me. And it was kind of like a U.S. house where the, the, the main door and a window is set back. 
and then you have the garage that kind of comes out into an L as you're looking at it. The, the long end of the L was the garage, but instead of being a garage, it was part of the house and it had a blacked out window. So I had a dark uh, lit window and then a blacked out window. And the decision was made that that was actually the compound that we were going to go into. That was about 10 minutes later. And I had, I had just looked at that compound for 10 minutes. I never saw a shadow. I never saw the curtain move. I was looking through my night vision goggles. I would look underneath the night vision goggles. I never saw anything. So they said that that's the building. Uh, we, there was a portion of the element that ran around to the other side that was going to come in from the back side of the building. So I hopped over, waited for two more guys to come with me. Uh, and I started making my way up to basically where the corner of the walkway would be, like straight out from the front door where you would come out and bang your left towards the garage door. And I was going to wait there and I was going to hold security and I was going to protect them while they put the breaching charge on the door. But I wasn't going to turn my back to the window, obviously, unless I took a look in it. So I was walking over there, doing my best uh, impersonation of a ninja. And I was looking at the lit window. And as soon as I shifted my gaze over to look into the dark window, I heard just bop, 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 bop. I just started hearing gunfire go off and got hit with the first round out of the goddamn window. Uh, and I was told later by the guys who were behind me, he was a guy who was just on his knees, who picked his head up and just put an AK up, full auto, just started spraying. So it hit me in the hip from about, I don't know, 15, 17 feet away, kicked my feet out from underneath me and kind of, I pushed off as I was falling down and slid underneath the vehicle that was in the little driveway. Uh, as the round, I mean, everybody started for a little bit, which seemed like about four to five hours. That was the only guy shooting, the guy shooting at me or the other guys in the courtyard. And then obviously all hell broke loose back at the window. Buddy of mine came, uh, had to pull, basically pull me out from around the vehicle, pull me around the corner. Uh, I was holding onto my leg, right? Cause all I can remember was direct pressure, direct pressure. He's like, move, move your hand. I'm going to cut your pants. Like, fuck you. I'm holding direct pressure. <laughs> Uh, was, yeah, I was, uh, I was emotionally uh, a little bit peaked out at the moment. And uh, he cut it open, and it was just like a combination of holes because the round had nicked a piece of rebar, so it was coming apart as it hit me, so it spackled. Uh, but I thought it had gone into my hip because – Ephemeral aggression? Well, I thought it had broken a bunch of the bones because as soon as it hit me, my entire leg went numb, and it just it, – like it, I hooked myself up to a car battery. And, you know, in all the medical training we do, they're like, you know, you need to be very careful of, like, high hip wounds. You can bleed yeah. out into the into your quad space. It can hold so much blood. And there's a lot of stuff going up. And, like, you're, you know, you break your, your femur. And if that interacts with the veins or the arteries, you're in trouble. Sure. So, I, I mean, on my initial honest true thoughts was I probably had about five minutes to live. And then when I looked down and I saw what it was, it was just kind of seeping blood. And they drug me outside. They gave me my gun back. And the gunfight continued inside of the compound eight guys ended up getting hurt on that target that means i was one of the least injured people so i took a bradley fighting vehicle back to the green zone in uh baghdad and then we had guys on helicopters uh i mean there was this, some guys who were hurt one guy's arm almost got filleted completely off because he was really close to the breaching charge um some severe head trauma one guy got shot in the bicep i mean it was uh <clears throat> it was exciting and uh, it put me flat on my back. I had been like operating at a super high level. I was incredibly active. Uh, I thought that I was in good shape. Again, I was 27, doing the job at the command I wanted to be at. Sure. Like, so I was in the well, NFL. You were at the top of the world. Right? I was in the NFL, loving it. I'm like, uh, you know, I was, I was going yeah, to go to the Pro Bowl. You know, I was, I was headed for a Pro Bowl season, and then all of a sudden I was flat on my back, and I couldn't do anything. 
And even though this was 2005, you know, the war had been going on for a couple of years. I don't think that they were used to a lot of the, in, in Iraq, no problem. Like their medicine there, like they were Johnny on the spot, moving us around helicopters, flew us to Germany. We got back to the U.S. and, you know, I went to the Naval Hospital, uh, had a, woke up one morning with a resting heart rate of 150, a headache and profusely sweating. I went and I checked in to the Naval Hospital where one of my sons was born. And the guy was like, what's wrong? I'm like, I'm in an extreme amount of pain. I feel like my heart is beating out of my head. And the guy goes, okay, well, what was the mechanism of the injury? And I said, it was a gunshot wound. And I wish my wife was here to confirm this because the dude looked directly at me and he goes, self-inflicted? <laughs> wow. and You're like, is that? Yeah. Um, more so importantly, uh, does that happen a lot? I would, yeah, well, they weren't used to dealing with it. And, mm -hmm. and then so I sat in the waiting room for three hours while they took people in with sniffles. And then when they finally took me back, and they researched what was going on. Then they wanted to bring all the doctors in, the training doctors, because military hospitals are largely training hospitals. Hey, do you mind if we show these guys a gunshot wound? Like that's how little they had seen up until that point. And so it was rough. I got about 14 prescriptions to, to painkillers, to uh, neuropathic pain control stuff, a drug called Neurotin, which is probably a great drug, but they gave me so much that like started shutting down my capacity to think. And I woke up one morning and I, I just couldn't deal with it. And that's how I actually found CrossFit. Went into the gym and started working out on my own off of what I could research off of the internet and was exhausting myself in the gym so I could actually sleep at night. And so instead of laying there feeling the neuropathic pain firing off in my leg, went home like a year later, come to find out CrossFit was started in Santa Cruz, like six blocks from my parents' house. I walked over, briefly said hi to Greg. Six months after that, Dave introduced me to Greg, worked a military seminar, ended up teaching at all the civilian seminars, ended up, they gave me one of the seminar crews to, you know, go around the world and teach the conceptual foundation. And yeah, worked for the company for eight years. I mean, it was awesome in all aspects, which is what I think it really helped me with public speaking. For one, the military forced me to do it. They're like, hey, here's your brief, well, go do it. Well, yeah, but I mean, also, uh, you know, we know this from teaching our own seminar. Like you get up and you have the opportunity to present information every single weekend. I want to say you get up there and you're like, it's on. And, but you uh, feel super comfortable. And yeah. the key, and the people like. But, but the only way you get that is having enough opportunities. Um, I, I also. Uh, and just, being comfortable enough to be yourself. I also bring this up. Uh, this was a gift to Power Athlete. This actually uh, flag was in Andy's pocket the night he got shot. And this is Trident. So that fly, this flag, uh, which was in combat and also in our good friend's pocket the night he got fucking lit up with an AK. Uh, flies and power athlete. So I'm going to sell that on eBay. It's worth like four or five dollars. Well, I remember when you gave it to me, I was like, <laughs> how many of these flags did you have? And you're like, one. And I'm like, you yeah. get to us? Yeah. I was like, so yeah, that's awesome. And that's better your... you keep it than me. <laughs> you know the deal with public speaking? I swear to God, like people freak out about this and it's still like the number one thing in the polls of uh, things that scare people is what I have seen when people struggle is they, they don't try to be themselves. Like I never try to do anything other than just be me. And then, so I start from position being comfortable. But here's the thing. But uh, I can couple that with a lot of experience doing it. Well, then, so it's even more actually, you know, even though I, I know you, you're a fucking idiot. Uh, you're actually a fairly cool person in that, of, you know, not like extremely not cool person. Like I think like, you know, you say like, when you're like, oh, I'm just myself, you're like, yeah, I was a, you know, Navy SEAL, I was shot in combat, I, you know, I fucking had all these dope fucking experiences, yeah, I've done this. You've done me long enough, I don't say that shit no, to people. I know you don't. It doesn't, yeah. But that gives you an inner confidence. 
that when you get up and you're like, yeah, uh, of course, you know, and I've also heard you in other situations where people try to appear to big time you or, you know, this and you're like, well, let's fucking, let's compare. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the revolver's loaded. You just don't have to shoot it at everybody. No, not I mean, but it's good to have it there. And and I think that's where a lot of people really struggle. It's kind of like, you know, my favorite is getting up and listening to Dr. Matt Lalonde speak. And Lalonde with his IQ of 174, who, you know, is socially awkward. Is that good? You know, he gets up and he's ready to fight everybody to battle his information. And, you know, and the guy's one of the smart people on the planet, so he gets up there and he fights. I mean, I think with a lot of people... your point across, though, when you come from that place, like, everything's going to be a battle. Well, I mean, but, you know, what we've learned on the internet is that uh, regardless of whether or not you know what you're talking about... (laughs) You just need a platform to voice your opinion. Yeah, you do. And you're going to have to argue with somebody because there's going to be some 12-year-old kid that's trolling your ass that has a fucking Google account that fucking can, you know, Google anything. So, I mean, and there's always conflicting opinions. I mean, we run into it every day. I mean, to the point where, uh, you know, Rob Wolf will forward me things and Rob's like, I can't believe I have to fight these fights every day. I'm like, well, you fucking picked it. Don't. Uh, But you know what? I I kind of look a little bit like we're in a situation and, you know, those of you guys that might know, I was a... Berkeley major, or went to Berkeley, but I was a classics rhetoric major. I was always going to bring up the rhetoric piece and the fact that you spell terribly. I don't know how you accomplished that. <laughs> well, actually, it's not my spelling as much as it's just my complete disregard for grammar. I think you're going for speed. I get it. I, like, I put it together. I'm like, what is he trying to say? Uh, Didn't you major in rhetoric? Well, uh, you know, the thing which I learned about rhetoric is that the, the rules of grammar and English are flexible as long as you can flex them. It's kind of like um, in the other documentary we saw, Wanted where the guy was able to bend the bullet. You can do that. Yeah, we tried. Yeah, you can do it. Yeah, we tried with the chef. Oh, yes, we did. I forgot about that. <laughs> yes, once. That was a documentary on uh, ballistic capabilities. It's true. Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, well, I was saying, as a, a classics major, one of my favorite books was Beowulf. And, you know, the big thing with Beowulf, which is one of the original heroic epics, was the idea of fighting a good fight. And I think uh, a lot of what we've done over the course of the years is this idea of providing good information and fighting a good fight. And like, I kind of look at power athlete in that way, yeah. you know, whereas you on the other hand are like, burn it to the fucking ground. If people aren't going to listen, I'm not going to fucking force it down. I wouldn't go that far. That good I wouldn't go that far. I would say I realized that even though you think it's a good fight, it's a matter of perspective and you're never going to silence everybody. So instead of burn it to the ground, selectively pick your battles. Sure. Because that way you won't go insane. We'll be strategic. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, when you, I mean, think, think about how many level one seminars you taught. Quite a few, yeah. Quite a few. Yeah. How much pushback did you get? It would vary. It would actually, in, it would in vary. the beginning, it was a lot. And then yeah. as time went on, because I remember when we first started teaching the CrossFit football, we got pushback. Yeah. And we haven't really got much pushback anymore. Yeah. What used to be controversial becomes accepted. And then the pushback's kind of like just, Floats away. Well, I, I got up this weekend and we were in Virginia Beach and uh, we got up to talk about you know nutrition and you know what to eat. And I realized long ago that I don't have to convince people that eating better food quality will translate into better performance and health. Like I'm like, if you eat real food, Good. you will feel better. And what's amazing is back in the day, people didn't buy into that because they believed in the fairy tale that if you have this magical balance of macronutrients. You can effectively eat dog shit, vegetable oil, and potato chips and be healthy. 
I see so we have we actually had kind of a question all along those lines. Do you guys want to take it? Fucking bring it. Right. Was it on can you actually how many carbs are in dog shit? Is that the question? <laughs> no, it's not dog shit. <laughs> it's and uh, we, we we also got a, a not on the deal, but uh, uh, we got a question about how I feel about John Runyon uh, getting. I don't know if you guys saw John Runyon is now the head of NFL finding. He's uh, one of my teammates who actually taught me how to play dirty. And now he's head of the NFL in terms of like handing out fines and disciplinary action for for any penalty in the NFL. Perfect. He knows exactly where to yeah, Exactly. He's yeah. it's like, you know, if you want to talk to Sin, don't go talk to a priest. Yeah. Right? Like if you want to know about fucking being dirty, you talk to John Runyon. And the best is I tell I, I sent him this with, with the meme of uh, <laughs> Doc Holliday being like, my hypocrisy only goes so far. And he sends it back and he's like, he's like, Oh, I fucking learned it all. You know, we've been bullshitting back and forth and he's like, he's like, dude. If you want to know about sin, go talk to a sinner. Find the NFL's fucking sharp enough and bring in people that actually know this fucking game. And uh, so, yeah, I've been rapping with Runyon all day on it. And so I was pretty Players excited. are probably like, for, I bet you they're conflicted. Because they're probably like, okay, awesome that that guy's getting to do it. But then when they get called on it, they're like, god damn it. Well, no, they can't lie. I mean, you know, Merton Hanks, and we get on their large shell, and they would fucking give us this bullshit. But Runyon gets on there, and like, Runyon's going to call a spade a spade. He's going to be like, okay. There was intent there. You meant to kick the guy in the balls. And you're going to be like, I can take it from him. Here's my question. All right, wait, wait, hold, hold on. Before we. No, well, let's save it for Other chance. people's questions aren't important. Okay. My questions about football are important. When, did, when does he assess the penalties? Do they watch the footage afterwards or is so it real time? What happens is, is during the game, uh, you know, you might uh, commit a penalty and they throw a flag. Yep. Right. Uh, that penalty will be reviewed by the uh, the conduct committee, you know, all at John Redman, and he will decide whether or not that there was a violation to the point of issuing you a fine. Okay, so it's not real time. Right. He will also go back and watch all the games, or the, the team of people watches all the games, and they'll bring questionable things that didn't get seen that potentially could get fined. So I, there was one situation where all of a sudden, like a week later, I get a FedEx envelope at your desk on a Wednesday morning, which means you get fined and you, <laughs> you open it up. And something that I hadn't even got fined and nobody saw, I didn't think anybody saw yeah. it. All of a sudden I got $5,000 I'm like, these motherfuckers. And so that's the deal. They go back and they're trying to chisel you for dollars. And um, I'm really- That's sting. Oh, I mean, I, I, one of the worst is like I find like 10 grand in a preseason game, which technically we only played for a few hundred dollars because you don't get paid in preseason. Oh. So I went into the season in a negative. And I, was like, <laughs> they, I remember I was like, you can't take money out of my game check. They're like, don't worry, we're going to take it out of your fucking week one. Oh, NFL problems. Big NFL problems. All right, dog shit. Dog shit. What, yeah, uh, I apologize. It's not, it's not about dog shit. I apologize. Can, can I fit dog shit into, yes. if it fits my macros? Yes. Like, flexible it's diving with dog shit. This, this one is all yours. Right, first off, across the football Thank you, Andy. 10 months into that massive string. Currently following the cross football eating guide, uh, but as CrossFit coach, I've tried the typical zone, etc. in the past. He's going to let you hear me. So. Nope. Alcohol. In the level one manual, Andy, the zone guide includes right, the level box. one manual. <laughs> and I'm currently working my way through the knowledge box while following the video episodes where Luke and Callie often talk about drinking in the early episodes because <laughs> we have nothing else to talk about. Uh, there's welcome information about the detrimental effect on alcohol, alcohol on nutrient consumption and health implications. I'm wondering what your view is for both high-level athletes and the average person who walks into the gym. Uh, currently on episode 21, the mother of God, those are like the worst. Well, well let me just give a little history on the podcast. So originally when the podcast
podcast started, uh, I wasn't even informed we were going to have a podcast, or maybe I wasn't. I didn't receive them. All of a sudden, I see these guys tweeting about the Power Athlete fucking podcast. I send these dudes a cease and desist. And they're and like, all of a sudden, these dudes are like, I, I get like crickets, like, we're real sorry. And then Luke hits me up. He's like, yeah, we, we're doing a podcast. I'm like, you guys didn't tell me? And he's like, well, no, it was a pilot. We're going to figure out how like it, it goes. So we didn't even launch the first one because it was under a cease and desist. And then they came out and we had a bunch of guys. And I, I was actually a, a uh, not even a regular guest on our own podcast. And then uh, as people started kind of fading away a little bit, I had to take a more prominent role. But uh, what do you think about podcasting? I like it. Uh, I didn't realize the reach. Like, I think it's like it has replaced. Well, I mean, everything. I was really excited to go on Joe's, Joe Rogan's podcast with you. You didn't even take me after I got you on that thing. I was invited to go by somebody else. Well, so I introduced I you to that person, and it was my suggestion, and you fucking leave me for that. All things outside of my control, plus you're out of the country. <laughs> it's, it's fucking true statement, you selfish son of a bitch. But like, like when I drive my car, all I do is I listen to podcasts now instead of the radio. It's a, a, I had no idea the reach and the depth of knowledge in some of those things, and it's, I found it like last December. I'm, uh, well, Callie, who works for us, is a podcast junkie. Yeah. And so she listens. Like She doesn't have a TV. She doesn't listen to the radio. I don't think she showers. I think she just listens to podcasts and just lets these like soothing words claim her. And um, so she talked to me about the power of the podcast. I frankly kind of hated the idea in the beginning because I was like, so what, people are just going to listen to us talk? It sounds moderately narcissistic. It is super narcissistic. Yeah. But then I realized fairly on, like we had uh, reached out to some really kick-ass guests and we had some really amazing people on and it was a way for me to actually connect with them on a different level. And all of a sudden, it increases the genealogy. And now we have you know, some really amazing people that are friends. And for the most part, it's allowed me to expand my knowledge base. So, I mean, we've had some, you know, some kick-ass guests talk about some things that I was like, I don't know anything about this, but this has given me a, an avenue to go down and do it. So it's become cool. But uh, so uh, if this guy's in the early days of the podcast were rough, uh, where does alcohol fit into this? I mean, well, hold on. Doesn't everybody assume? I mean, like, yeah, alcohol's fun, but doesn't everybody go in with the assumption that if you drink too much, it's going to have detrimental effect? Well, I don't think there's anybody out there that thinks alcohol is a performance enhancer. Not yeah, when it comes. Not, not when it comes to exercise. I will say that there's um, role for alcohol and performance enhancing, but it's just not in the gym. Uh, okay. <laughs> so I'm going to, because we talked about John Runyon a little bit, let me talk to you about my good friend, John Runyon. John Runyon uh, firmly believed that the only way you played good on Sunday is if you went out and drank too much on Friday night and you had still were hungover on Sunday. Yeah, but that doesn't so mean anything. Played, Scientologists believe that the alien race colonized the world. It doesn't mean it's true. So we would go out and we would tear it up. <laughs> So the way it would work is uh, Runyon would go home after practice on Friday and he would start drinking beers and I would lift weights because Friday was always Jack Street and we'd go in there bang weights. I'd go over to his house and we'd go hang out and he was usually, like Runyon's claim to fame is he could drink a 24 pack of beer before it got warm. He'd take it out of the fridge. Well, how, how big, I have no idea who this guy is. Is he massive? Uh, 6, 8, 3, 3, 3, 20, 3 Oh yeah. He's, so he's like maybe got a light buzz on after the first oh, yeah. case he, of beer? He, he would like, like he, <laughs> he'd let me get drink those suckers before they got warm. Okay. And uh, I'd show up, you know, a bunch of drinks and then... Uh, you know, we'd watch his kids and, you know, fuck around. And uh, John liked to watch the weather. It was a big deal. We'd like, sit there and drink and watch the weather. So it was a good deal. Uh, but he firmly believed that 
to play good on Sunday, you had to have a bit of a hangover because it allowed you to be a little angry and not really focus on the, on the deal. And uh, I played the majority of my NFL games with a hangover. So as a performance enhancer in that way, uh, it was for me because it put me in a really bad mood. But I do not really believe that alcohol is going to necess- necessitate better strength gains in the gym. Now, I was going to say, yeah, look at it now after being look like look back on it. What if he had not gone that route and instead had been lifting with you and found a different way to get himself into that headspace? Don't you think his performance probably would have been even better? Well, he played 14 years. I'm not saying his performance was bad, but just because something works doesn't mean that there's not something better. Sure. I mean, uh, like, whereas I look at alcohol as kind of a, I guess you could say, stress reliever. Sure. So, I mean, like, you know, know, I'm going to come out, let's have a few beers, let's relax, a glass of wine. Uh, George Zangas, the old guy who trained me, uh, believed that pre-meet, when you go into a powerlifting meet, the night before, big pasta, red wine night. And if you drink a bottle of red wine, you'll have a set of PR the next day. And I don't know if it was uh, stress relief, having a good time, the alcohol, whatever it is. I mean, I just don't really think that alcohol is a performance enhancer. Now, with that said. How many guys wear, like, special game day socks? And have, like, a little sash showing underneath their uniform. They're a little lucky fill in the blank. Dude, uh, NFL players are some of the most superstitious people. That's what I'm saying. Try the point I'm trying to get at. So, it doesn't necessarily. Well, I, I, I agree with you. I, I'm, I'm not saying yeah. it does or doesn't. I just look at it like, if you want to have a drink, why are you so fucking worried about it? Yeah, totally. Like, Guess what? Like, you get one lap around the track. Maybe you ought to enjoy it a little bit. Yeah. You I train mean, hard so you can live your yeah. goddamn life. Now, I will say that um, if I could probably put one of the best drinkers I've ever seen in my life would be a John Runyon. And on the other side of the spectrum with the worst drinker. Oh, I, I know where this is going. Is uh, <laughs> Mr. Andy Stump. Because I don't drink consistently. He is. But I like to drink like John Runyon when I do drink. So what was amazing <laughs> is uh, Andy has one speed. Yeah, And it's literally true. put to the accelerator. And uh, Andy also has a deal, which is like the overload principle, which is uh, I'm going to consume as much alcohol as I can in 10 minutes. And as soon as it hits me after I have 11 minutes, I'm ready to go. So, I mean, Andy, like, like what most people do in three hours master, is you do in 10 yeah. minutes. It's the master of the Irish goodbye, too. You're like, this is awesome. Cool. I got to go. <laughs> yes. And he is uh, like, I don't, yeah. like a ninja smoke bomb and disappear. I do struggle with that. Believe me, I'm critically self-aware that I have, I have two speeds. I have like stop and I have go. I've been that way my whole life. I don't think, I don't think it's unique to me, but when it comes to things like alcohol, because I don't drink regularly, not because I don't like drinking. I hate being hungover. Okay. You know? Well, well uh, those of you guys that are watching this, uh, your perception of drinking and being hungover and all that changes dramatically once you have kids. Oh, God. Because here's the deal. You stay out and get boozed up all night and you're hungover, your kids are. And they still wake up at 5.45 and 6 in the morning. It's not really. Go, yeah, yeah. Can we go watch Wonder Pets or uh, or a Doc McStuffins or, uh, you know, Peppa Pig or some other crap that I get to watch? And, like, dude, you get, if you're hungover and you get up, you know, uh, there is no laying in bed, I'm hungover, yes. I feel sick. You still got to get up and make pancakes and hang out with your kids. So I remember uh, when we had the twins, like the girls were a couple months old, Kate and I got invited somehow to a babysitter when I had a couple of drinks, and all of a sudden we got up and like the kids started crying. <laughs> we got home at one thirty, and at 2.30, the kids were uh, like uh, pissed, crying. Because they know. I swear to God, they know. And like, dude, we were kind of hammered, and we're like, uh, I'm like, like eyes shows walking around trying to console these kids. I remember Kate being like, I can't do it. Like, the only, the only way we're going out drinking is if we have a babysitter that's watching them overnight and we can stay at a hotel. But 
I mean, um, we digress. I, Back to alcohol. I do not purpose. think. Now, here's the deal. Um, there's one rule of nutrition. I'm going to look at this one when it comes to power athlete. But this is our one nutrition rule. It overarching everything else. Don't be weird. That could be like a life philosophy. Well, no, this is really true because I, I and this all stemmed from having like so. I had a really, really rare uh, opportunity, which I don't think a lot of people have had in terms of power athlete, is I had to go on the road after my 10-year NFL career and teach across the football power athlete to thousands of people around the globe over hundreds of seminars over a bunch of years. And I got to the point where I had to teach this information over yep. and over again, answer questions, this, people would, would, would bomb me with things, I'd have to go research. And I had to literally ferret this stuff out in real time in front of people that had paid $795 for a two-day weekend and that'd be fucking entertained them like a dancing monkey. And this information came to the point where we just created this wheelhouse where like, this is my, this is where we stay, this is what we do, yeah. this is what we know, and anytime we get outside of it, we fucking chop it off. And, you know, what I realized is, you know, people would get so stuck in the minutia of nutrition. Like, what, is it 12 almonds or 13 almonds or this? Or, they do or, that before they look at the bigger picture. They well, go super micro instead of taking an objective well, I mean, look at the be, macro. Be, you know, ask me a question. You know, they, you know, I work out and I have a protein shake. Uh, is it better to eat my next meal within 90 minutes or 60 minutes? And I was like, uh, what can you do? And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, can you eat it at 90 or 60 minutes? You got to get home. Uh, well, it doesn't matter. I'm like, well, eat it at 60 minutes. Well, what if I'm still full from the protein shake? Then eat it at 90 minutes. Well, which one's better? And I'm like, well, what are you eating? Which like, one's better on Thursday? Yeah. yeah. What about Saturday because well, like, the sun's it, out? It, 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 yeah. it, it was this fucking minutia that people were getting stuck in. And I was like, I, like, and I remember like listening to this guy. And actually, it was a seminar about Boa. This dude showed up to the seminar. And uh, he didn't wear shoes. I'm pretty sure he had like made his own clothes and he was obsessed with this idea of training and he was trying to like hybrid uh, like functional movements with like some move. I mean, the guy was all over the fucking place, but he was eating a diet of raw food. So he wasn't cooking his food. I've heard of that. Yeah. <clears throat> so he was consuming this, uh, this elixir of raw eggs, cocoa, uh, raw milk. And uh, I think he was like raw meat, like mixed up in this thing. This guy was drinking this, and he's like, "Oh, this stuff's great." And I'm like, "Well, how's it? You know, how's it playing out?" He's like, "Oh, I feel fucking great." And he's like, "Well, you know," I'm like, "Well, you know, how you lift?" And he's like, "You know, he fucking back squat with like you know 205 pounds." And and I was like, looking at this guy, he's like, "Oh, I feel great." I'm like, "Well, uh, you know, your body fat's probably about 25 percent. Uh, you were one of the worst movers we had, and uh, you stink like fucking death." And the guy was like, he was so upset, and I'm like, "Dude, you're consuming like 36 raw eggs a day, like." Uh, have you ever been checked to see if you have a food allergy? You're fucking eating raw meat. Oh God, can you imagine if you did undiagnosed? Dude, he, he did. He had so much like cortisol inflammation around his gut. Like he was so lunchy looking. That's actually where I coined the term lunchy. Like lunchy when you squeeze somebody's arm and they're like, yeah, my fingers stay and they just look lunchy. Yeah. So, Lobster ankles after a yeah. long flight. Yeah, the lunchy look. And uh, I remember telling him, here's the deal, man. One thing I want you to do is just don't be weird. If you feel yourself going to a weird place, Take a step back and try to stay out of weird land. And um, that became one of the overarching talks at our nutrition seminar is people would start to tweak out. They'd be like, well, you know, uh, like what if I take 10 grams of creatine? Is it better? I'm like, well, you're taking creatine? Great. Is it five, 10 grams? Okay, we'll, we'll experiment with both. See which one you like the better, the better. And people would just literally take it to this granular level. And I remember just being like, don't be weird. If somebody goes out and you're at your buddy's house and he offers you a beer, 
And this actually happened, we were actually teaching a seminar and there was a level one that same weekend. And as we were walking out of the restaurant, the level one crew walked walked into the restaurant and um, uh, you know, uh, Dave Castro said, hey, why don't you come sit with us and have dinner? So we went in and we sat with the level one crew and they invited us out the next night. And so we show up to this like huge party that these people have. I mean, level one's in town, they're having this great batch. And a bunch of the trainers weren't drinking because they were in a challenge, 30 day paleo challenge, no alcohol. And I remember like these people were like, you want a beer? Like, no, I can't. And I'm like, these people are offering you beer. Have a fucking beer. Yeah. Life's too short. Yeah. Man. And like that to me was like, <clears throat> don't be weird. So. so how about this? What's the, to try to get back to the nutrition thing and maybe help somebody out. What's the biggest thing you've seen that derails people nutrition wise? Like what, what have you seen that it, the, the biggest thing to avoid to not undermine your training? Consistency. So what I've found is um, regardless of what your goals are, if you can consistently chisel away, like for example, let's say your goal is to lose weight. Yep. I mean, we run into this all the time. People like my goal, my goal is to lose weight. You know, we know if we get somebody's BMR done, which is a basic metabolic rate, you know, they should burn X amount of calories. You should have X amount of calories. Let's say you work out, like, you know, and let's say we set calories. And even though I'm not uh, overly concerned with total caloric load, uh, because I think it fluctuates by day based on energy expenditures. And I also think that it's, uh, there's, there's gotta be some, well, I'll, I'll get into that. But if you consistently eat in a deficit, you know, you will theoretically lose mass. Yeah. Based right. on the rules of thermodynamics. Right. Yeah. But here's the problem with that. Uh, traditional medicine says, if you want to lose weight, what do they say? When you go to the doctor, move more, eat less. I don't know. Yeah. I never go to the doctor and ask him well, about my weight. Well, but I mean, like most people in this country, if they're overweight, they go to the doctor. That's the advice they get. Yeah. <clears throat> Move more, eat less. So the problem is, then the people come back and they still lost weight. So then what, what do you assume? They're lazy and they're gluttonous, right? Because they were obviously lazy because they couldn't move more. That is what and I personally would assume. Right. Yes. But I, I, I'm past, like, I don't believe that everybody is gluttonous and lazy. Uh, but what I truly believe is that people go in cycles. So what they do is like, hey, I'm going to eat a caloric deficit and the body's smart. So what it does is, you know, you're under eating, you're under eating, you're under eating, and you do for maybe four or five days. And then you fucking binge. Yeah. Or you go out and you're like, hey, I'm just going to have losing, a Because you're losing your mind. So well, you yeah, binge. because your body has this innate mechanism to try to like survival. So it's like you've been under eating, calorically underfed, underfed, underfed. And then they go out and they're sitting down with some friends and Mexican food and next you know they eat four bowls of chips you know, four guacamoles, <laughs> and, and it usually comes after the first drink. Yeah, margarita. I'll have one margarita. Can I get that as a locale with just a twist of lemon? Can I get it in a chalice? You're right. Just... And, and, and what would I say? Yeah, I want a NorCal margarita, just a little bit of lime, a little bit of tequila would be fine. The lime and the tequila will offset itself because They're it's done. A, right? Oh, and, and it's a total power. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, your fucking inhibitions go away, and you're like, you know, I'm just going to have a few chips. Next thing you know, four baskets of chips later, a guacamole, and like uh, a deep fried chimichanga with mole sauce, and deep fried ice cream in seven flavors. Yeah. And you're like, oh, as you've consumed every <laughs> calorie that you, you were in deficit yeah, for the entire week. And then what do you do? You feel like dog shit and I'm a piece of crap. And then you're like, then you slowly get back on the train and you're like, oh, you feel terrible. And now your self-control and your, and your self-worth is down. So what do you do? You under eat, you under eat. And then it happens again. And I've seen people into this like under eat binge. And so my deal is really, um, you know, the analogy is, is uh, uh, 
uh, Rob Wolf said this guy, Dr. Fung, uh, on, his pod, on his podcast, who wrote a great book called The uh, Obesity, Obesity Code. And he made an analogy in there that, um, let's say you make 100 grand a year, right? And you're living on 100 grand a year, you're driving a decent car, you're, you know, you're traveling, you're having a good time, you're living your life. Next year, 25 grand. Do you die? Or can you still live like you're living on 100? No. no. What do you do? Your life just slows the fuck down. Yeah. You don't live in a nice place, you don't have a nice car, you don't go on the trips, you don't die. And so his deal is like, if you're living on X amount of calories and you reduce those calories, it isn't as if your body still works at the same level, right? What does it do? It just slows the system down. Yeah. And so- It's not that simple. It's not that simple. Yeah. If it was, then everybody would be in shape, but they're not. Yeah. So what I look at is uh, you either have two options. Um, you can either eat a better diet of quality food, which I think is more satiating, uh, you can, you know, adjust your total calories, eat for sustainability. Like, hey, if, if, if I'm, you know, uh, burning 3,000 calories a day and I eat 3,000, that's great. Because some days I'm going to eat 3,500, some days I'm going to eat 25. And, uh, you know, eat within balance. So don't be a crazy person. Eat normal. And then exercise. Um, the physical changes that we have seen with our clients, because what what people don't see is we have a huge, huge, huge performance training deal offline, uh, on, online, off, you know, off uh, on the paid back end with not only nutrition but mm -hmm. training. The difference in, phys in, in physical stature, let's say just your physique. A transformation. Between training three hours, four hours, and then when you get up to six hours. And I first heard from uh, John Berardi, uh, who's a doctor, a PhD, who's got a great site for precision, uh, precision nutrition. Uh, I've always been a fan of his. I think he's got some really heady stuff. He made a point about uh, the difference in people's physiques between like how many hours they exercise. So we tested it. You know, you know, we're, you know, writing different training uh, offline. You know, hey, I need you to move. And I started looking at the total training time and the difference between people training four hours and six hours. Is that per day? No, per week. Okay. So just every day, forty-five minutes to an yeah, hour. Yeah, I'm with you. I thought right. for a second you were saying day, and no. I was like, holy cow. No, 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 no. But, but like the age old, like, hey, I do uh, three 10-minute workouts a week. I wonder why I'm not meeting my goals. It's because you're doing three 10-minute workouts a week. But, I mean, that's kind of what I know. I'm with you. Right? So, uh, and, and you, you saw this when you owned a CrossFit gym. Andy and I both have owned CrossFit gyms. The people that come three days a week do okay. Yep. But all of a sudden, they go to four, five, six, and they go three on, one off, and they start coming for, you know, six out of seven days a week. And their performance and how they their physical stature once they change their eating, all of a sudden everything fucking comes in a line. Yep. And what was amazing to me is that when people asked me, like, how many days should I train? I was like, well, I want you to ramp up to that, you know, three on, one off, six days a week. I'm like, isn't it too much? I'm like, no. Remember, if we were 20,000 years ago, you would have to go walk 10 miles and kill something every single day to feed yourself. And there'd be days you wouldn't see anything, so you wouldn't eat. So this idea of, like, titrating calories every three hours. Yeah. It's fucking bullshit. Well, life just doesn't work like that. You know, the biggest thing I saw when I was when I owned the gym, <clears throat> people knew where they wanted to get to. Like they wanted to get to the three on one off six hours a week in the gym, but they wanted to go from zero hours of working out to day two on the six hour a week protocol. Like they don't, they just don't want to do the fundamental stuff. Like they can't grasp the domino concept. Which in a nutshell is small things, you know, small things with kinetic well, energy but, can add up over time. But even here's the other problem. They weren't realistic about what they could do. So, I mean, I used to have people come in and they'd be like, well, I only, you know, I'll trade three days a week, which I do in the days. I'm like, why don't you down walk for 20 minutes? Yeah. And you know what? And then they're like, well, okay. And then what? And I'm like, well, then after you, you walk, uh, you're going to come to the gym three days. Your other days, you're going to walk 20 minutes. Uh, after one week that you've proved to me you can do it, 
we're going to maybe add another workout. Yep. And then they're like, well, then what do I do? I'm like, then you're going to work three days a week. And we're going to slowly add over time, and we're going to linear progress your load and volume. It's like shin splints. Yeah. You know, if you don't run and you go out and you run 100 miles, you're fucked up. But if you go it's out and sting run, a bit. if you go out and run one mile and then two miles yep. and you load into it, your body will adjust. Same thing with the calories. Same thing with the food. So probably the biggest reason that I've seen that people have failed in the bulking, and also the actually more people fail in the bulk than I think. Because think about this. Like I just we, think you see more people complaining about the leaning. Maybe they're more vocal about it. Well, it's a very rare population that we get that, like, I'm going to fucking bulk up. I want to put on fucking mass. Because, For sure. You know? For sure. Yeah, that's probably the – well, especially given the modern day of, like, what the acceptable physique is. It's the other direction. Well, I mean, but we run into people that are like, I need to put on muscle. The only way I'm going to get better at this shit is if I put on muscle because you have two opportunities. You either create a more efficient central nervous system or you create a larger cross-sectional size of muscle. So a larger muscle, theoretically, should be able to support more weight. Do you know what makes life easier? Being strong. Well, Please define for me, or give me a negative side effect of being strong. Um, exactly. I don't think there is. I mean, uh, <laughs> Mark Ripto made probably one of the most insightful comments, and uh, those of you guys that know Rip, uh, one of my favorite people in the world, just for the mere fact that uh, he's so blunt. Like, there's no pulling punches. I've never heard rip ever default to somebody's feelings like yeah no i can't say that but he said dude stronger people are harder to kill and generally more useful i can't think of a negative side effect of strength and um you know i always love the age old one it's like oh you never know how strong you are until strong is the only thing you can i'm like well you know you need to fucking listen right but uh, really with nutrition um it's a lack of consistency yeah. uh, you know and, and you watch people i mean i i watched um well, I don't think they give it enough time either. They think that well, five days. Like, it's it's been five days, John. I, I did your <laughs> diet for five days. So what? I had a bowl of chips. Like, no. Like, yeah. you look at it. It's funny. I wish people would look at leaning out the same way they do bulking. Nobody expects to add 30 pounds in a month. But God help them if they can't see their abs in like four days. It, it's this very uh, unbalanced system. We, we have, well, uh, your, your body's pretty interesting in that there's um, there's this little thing called homeostasis. So your body's always fighting for homeostasis, and your body has a set point where it knows exactly what homeostasis is, and it kind of likes to work within a pattern. So all of a sudden, what you do is you add in something like more exercise. Now all of a sudden, I'm working out in zero, and now I go to work out in six days, and I'm burning more calories, I'm doing this. The body is going to drive hunger, or it's going to put you in a situation to try to consume more calories. You know, uh, so it, which scares people. They're like, oh, we're doing Do you know how many people we've had? Like, uh, just even on our lean protocol, we'll come in and just basically give them a basic prescription of calories, and they'll be like, oh my god, this is twice as much food as I've always ate. I'm yeah, like, it's because you've been starving yourself, yeah. and that's what your body thinks. And, and so, what it does is it slows your metabolism down, just like you go from your 100 grand to 25 grand. It's not like it's gonna just like you can't live off of 25 grand the way you do 100. It's going to slow the fuck everything down. Yep. And next you know, your metabolism's in the toilet and you have all these other fucking problems. So I think the easiest thing to do is just um, look at, you know, like you said, look at small goals. Uh, you know, be patient. Well, look at, I mean, my, my favorite is uh, two things. Biggest loser. So you put a big amount of money in front of you. They've been quite in the news quite a bit lately for uh, well, all past participants. Yeah. Well, yeah, they all rebound. Why is it? Because they're fucking starving themselves. I mean, because there's a goal. If you put somebody like a hundred grand, a million dollars in the line, they will fucking make it happen. But all of a sudden, when there's no more deal in there and health is the only uh, opportunity, it kind of peels out. I'd do a lot for a million dollars. I would do. I have done a lot for a million dollars. 
Uh, but the other one I would is, not be proud of myself for the things I would do for my <laughs> I was proud. Uh, the better part is people cheered my name and fucking little kids asked for autograph. Well born Eve. Well born Eve. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, the, uh, the other one is, is um, somebody asked me the other day, what's, if, if I needed a dramatic weight loss, what would be the best thing to do? And I told them, I want you to go online and I want you to send in your application for Naked and Afraid. Yep. Well, it's all about the motivation. Because those three weeks, people will, like, first of all, they will change their life. Turn on a camera. Yeah. Get naked. Go out in the wilderness. No, thanks. With no survival skills. Yeah. And survive out there for 21 days with no food. And you know what happens? Most people, like, lose anywhere from 20 to 40 pounds. Before the show or during? During the show. That Over three weeks. Just straight up caloric deficiency, like zero calories. Well, it's, it's basically like a three week fast because most of the people are out there eating. I mean, they're eating less than, you know, 100, 200 you know, yeah, calories a day. If they're lucky. If they're lucky. A lot of people don't find any food. And you know what they do? They just like, like there was a dude who actually made it. He just dug a hole and sat in the hole. So there's no food. I'm not going to move. And the guy ended up losing like 30 pounds. Because there's a smart I mean, strategy. Well, there's some really interesting stuff about fasting where, uh, you know, they, they had a deal where a guy, I think it was like 450 pounds. Uh, they only gave him water and some like uh, vitamin supplements for 17 months, and he was like a buck sixty, and he didn't die. Man, that had to hurt though. But think about it: like the guy had so much excess body weight on him that he could survive. I mean, I, I, I mean that to me. Um, I, I remember um, uh, uh, Dom Diagostino was on a, a on a podcast, and he's a you know, ketone a ketogenic researcher, doctor, does yep. cancer stuff out of Florida. And he's good friends with our friend Ken Ford, and so Ken sent me some stuff of his. And he talked about, you know, uh, uh, you know, I think the question was, if you got cancer, what would you do? And he's like, I just starve it out at fast. And he's like, he's like, dude, if you're not eating, your body will clear, you know, metabolic garbage. And he, he went through a pretty interesting thing. About I forget this. I forget the stats, but cancerous cells consume like multiples of the amount of sugar than uh, regular cells. Well, and if you go to the hospital, you know what they do? They hook you up to a glucose IV, and they give you, they try to take you nutrients throughout the day, and then the other arm is opiates. Mm-hmm. So they give you morphine, which actually causes cancer cells to grow faster. I just had uh, my, my sister-in-law, God rest her soul, um, ended up developing esophageal cancer. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, my half-sister. And uh, she was gone in under a month. And they wondered why the cancer tripled in size in three weeks. And when I went in there, they had her hooked up to a 24-hour glucose IV. Yeah, they fed it. Yeah. And then they gave her opiates. I mean, that's why the, you know, this, um, so I don't know if I told you this, but, uh, you know, my, my ex-teammate, Kyle Turley, yeah. um, is, uh, is right now in this big deal called the Cannabis Gridiron Club. And where he's trying to become or let cannabis marijuana become a substitute for painkillers with NFL players. Because the painkillers, he believes, and actually a lot of people I do believe too, are causing more trouble. Uh, I can with, I can speak from my own personal dude, experience. He, he 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 told me a story, and he, you know uh, about how they had all these psychotropic drugs, painkillers, all the shit, and he's like you know suicidal, and he's like I got to do something, and so he ended up finding out that there were some cannabis strains that acted very similar to the drugs he was taking, and he was able to wean himself off all that shit. He told me the other day, he's like I would be dead, I would have killed myself as so many NFL players had if I hadn't found cannabis. And so he has the Cannabis Gridiron, um, uh, like the Gridiron Association, where he's really lobbying and working for this and um, you know, has asked me to come in and, and help. And, and he, even though I don't really have a lot of experience with, yeah. uh, with cannabis, what I've, the changes I've seen in him. You can remedy that. 
I mean, yeah, I guess. I, just, I never believed in the power of it until uh, I saw what happened with my mom. Because I think I, I think most people assume maybe it's from uh, Hollywood or whatever you see in the media. Well, when you think of marijuana, what do you think? Cheech and Chong? Like, yeah, you think people like, are like dazed and confused. Yeah. And I thought that for a while too. I didn't realize that there was ways to. Well, you I, lived in Santa Cruz. I did live in Santa Cruz, but again, I, all I ever wanted to do was be a team guy. So yeah, I mean, I smoked some weed, but it's not like I, I had to at some point go beyond that because I knew what I wanted to do later yeah. on. But I still didn't realize that like. So there's the stereotype of what it is, and then there's the ability to manipulate the strains. Yeah. Like, so my mom died of non-smoker's lung cancer in 2010. Survivability, survivability rate of like 0%. Uh, and I watched her, you know, I missed the large majority of it because I was on deployment, but when I came home, you know, she had basically refused the chemo because it was going to kill her faster yeah. than the cancer was. But that still left her nauseous, like in a ton of pain, and they're like, here's the offerings from the hospital. Like, oh yeah, this is here's a little bit of this, uh, we'll give you some of that. And then there's my dad doing research on some edible stuff and she had an appetite, yeah. she was pain free. It's like, what yeah. in the my fuck mind. are we doing as a society where it's like, and it was so educational for me to actually see it because now it's completely changed the way I feel about it. Like, well, so I'm, I'm wondering the same boat with you, uh, my aunt, uh, passed away. She had lymphoma, and they uh, she's up in Canada, and they were offering her cannabis, and uh, she was didn't want to take it because that was what those dirty hippies. Yeah, the stereotype. Yeah. And so uh, you know, and like I'm like thinking to myself, I'm like, so you're gonna take all these you know, prescription painkillers and drugs and try to manage this thing, and um, you know, and, and the same thing with my half sister who you know passed away so so suddenly it was uh, you know there has to be something better. And then when Kyle hit me up about what he was doing, I mean his tale is pretty heroic, uh, you know, that, you know, here he was, you know, on 14 different psychotropic drugs, painkillers, all these different things, and he doesn't take any of them now, and he was able to find different strains of marijuana yeah. that actually helped him with his deal, and he's asking me, and I was like, dude, I'm totally cool with it. I'm like, any misconceptions or any, uh, you know, thoughts I have on it yeah. are completely erased for the mere fact that, like, you know, what... What necessary evil do you want? Is this the evil or is this the evil? Yeah, because taking, this evil yeah. is fucking people up. You're taking meds to counteract the effect of the meds that you're taking. Yeah. And then you can't shit, so yeah. then they got to give you those and meds. And you can't get off of them because it's changing chemistry. Yeah, like it, Well, I mean, we, you know, our, uh, our good friend, Uncle Huey, um, you know, periodically he's on a couple, you know, different you know, uh, drugs. And, like, all of a sudden, you will like, kind of spin out a little bit. I'm like, what's up? He's like, oh, the meds are wrong. I got to get the, you know, I got to, like, fix the, the, the meds. And he'll like, you know, go back to the doctor, they kind of change it, and he feels a little bit better. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, this is fucking Russian roulette. These doctors don't know what the fuck they're doing. No. There's, there's zero. It's a practice, not a science. Yeah. It's the medical They're practice. like, uh, why don't we try this one? So, yeah, I was the recipient of that too. And they're like, perhaps well, this anti-seizure medicine will work. I'm like, well, what if it doesn't? Well, we'll try then, something else. Yeah, we'll give you something it's else. It's shotgun approach. Yeah. I mean, when we were in the NFL, uh, I didn't know this, but um, at the time, uh, there's something called Tortal. I don't know what Tortal is. It's an injectable anti-inflammatory. Yeah. And we used to call it vitamin T because when you got the Tortal, all of a sudden, about five minutes later, all the swelling was gone. I could make fists. I felt You're back good. in the game, coach. Put me in. <laughs> it was literally like, man, Is it controlled substance? Uh, Outside the confines of an anti locker room. Well, yeah, but like, yeah. like, you, you, you would watch guys get in line yeah. and the doctor would hit it and then he'd put a little Band-Aid over your butt. And I remember being in the shower and being like, Everybody's got the same band-aid on their ass. So, I mean, everybody got Why it. Why are you looking at well, the, the asses in the shower? Jesus, man. Well, I mean. We don't have to share everything. People are watching. 
pale, you know, white skin band-aids on a bunch of black dudes is pretty noticeable. <laughs> and uh, no, dude, like chin up. So, well, yeah, you don't make eye contact. That's like part of the rules. But uh, so we would go in and get these tortoise shots, and I would wait as long as I could to get the tortoise shot. There were dudes getting them in preseason. Oh wow! And my deal was like, I'm gonna wait until I really fucking need this stuff. And uh, towards the end of the season, you know, when you get fucked up, you like, you know, mess yourself up. They give you the tortoise shot. And uh, part of the reason why I would wait so long was that you felt great during the game, on, and I would still feel pretty good on Monday mm-hmm. because I would be able to go in and train and bang weights. Tuesday, fucking mess. Really? I, I would come in and lift weights, and I would train, and do Wednesday I felt so bad, and then Wednesday I'd start to feel better, start to feel better by Friday, you know, go in, have a little walkthrough on Saturday and go play. But shit, a bunch of stuff just came out that, like, uh, Toral is like you know one of like the big warnings is like may cause severe brain problems, oh, may sure. cause train, I mean trauma. So uh, you know that that was never given to us. I mean it's just you know and then the uh, the, the host of painkillers and um, I, I had a pretty good ch- uh, talk with uh, Dr. Peter Tia, who's fucking another long smart guy, and I asked him um, what he thought about opiates in terms of um, uh, you know chronic and both acute uh, you know brain injuries. You know, repeated head strikes mm-hmm. and this, and you know, would that be a, a you know maybe a possibility that it's causing more problems than this? And he's like, I'm sure there's research out there, and he kind of pushed me down that road a little bit of being able to look at it. But I mean, a lot of the problems that are really plaguing ex NFL players actually plague a lot of the seals. And um, a lot yeah, of those tra- traumatic brain injury is just that the, the brain doesn't discriminate against the mechanism. Well, I mean, I mean, dude, I, I, when we were out at Mid South and they set off that breaching charge where I was standing there, and that was about a quarter of what it is, dude. That shit rang my bell for about thirty minutes. I can't even imagine being able to sit behind all those breaching charges. There's nothing like being a ninja and going up to a door and you're just like setting this massive breaching charge. <laughs> you're like big old titties. Oh, so, and then you like you're getting it like you're, you're playing it out. And you're gonna go to your little hiding spot. You turn around and somebody blows it, and all the hiding spots are taken. <laughs> and just like, you're like, Mother Nature's gonna piss her pants. Mother of God. And you just get into a ball and you're like, Yeah, go ahead. And you just sit up. I'm good, coach. Put me back. It hurts so bad. Dude, that's yeah. the, uh, but yeah, man. I mean, uh, fuck, how we go? We, well, we were talking about nutrition, and then we went Whoa, down into question. Into- <laughs> All right, but, so, so you had a pretty solid train of thought on why people feel bulk. So I guess we were kind of getting going. You want to go to the other side of the coin? Between, between leaning and bulking, and I guess I can, I can kind of contribute to this because Callie was on lean, and I thought she was just whining where I was on bulk, and it was a, it was a real fight because there's sometimes no more fucking room, and you have to, like, Talk yourself into whoa. the point of almost barfing on those things. Well, so Luke's problem, and, and Luke, and this is uh, so uh, those of you guys don't know the way Jack Street came about in terms of the program and the bulking, the leaning came out is we had this uh, friendly bet in the office where it's how all great things start. Uh, I wrote a program, it was 22 weeks. And the only reason it was 22 weeks was that from the day we started to the day we finished was my birthday, so we went 22 weeks. And uh, we wrote a bulking protocol, we wrote a leading protocol, and then uh, I selected uh, a keto protocol. So that's what you guys see. Yep. And um, so we start these things, and we all did the same training program. The only difference was in nutrition. Luke, Tex, and Bobby were, uh, they had to gain 10% of their body weight. Callie and I had to lose 10% of our body weight. Okay. And then at the end. I remember the pictures from the end of this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
and he's like, Jesus Christ. That's not human. Yeah. So, yeah. So we, we go into this whole deal and, uh, I was trying to help Luke along, but I, I didn't really give him all the secrets he needed to be successful because yeah. I didn't want him to do it. And I also sent him on a lot of long distance, uh, you know, seminars. But, uh, yeah, so the, the real story is John fucking set me up. He's like, yeah, yeah, just keep eating. I'm like, dude, look, I feel really cool and I can get really big. He's like, yeah, it's a bulky protocol. Oh, by the way, you're on a 30 hour long flight to South Africa. Well, where I basically went into like a diabetic state because I was sitting on my ass for 30 fucking hours. Well, Luke, so Luke the true thing uh, for me when I, when I needed to put on body weight, um, it was actually, I would uh, make a massive protein shake. It was like protein shake, peanut butter. It was like this fucking kitchen sink. And I would put it by my bed and I would set an alarm clock. And at 2 a.m., I would get up and I would pound this thing and immediately go no, back to sleep. No, no, And like no, that no, to no, me no, no, no. was probably one of the best tricks I had for putting on size. And I remember Dr. Deepa Squall gave me that. He's like, I want you to make this god awful shake. He goes, oh, you know, and he went and through the And then you got to drink it. And then he's like, here's the thing. And I was like, well, what if I don't wake up? He's like, better wake up. He's like, no, I got to drink it. So, so, then so go to the other side, leaning. What's the best uh, advice you can give somebody who wants to lean out? Since we talked about uh, leaning. The best advice I've seen for leaning is, um, you know, one is you have to have a scale. And two, you have to have both a body weight scale for you to weigh yourself. And you should have a scale to measure food. Because the problem is most people have no fucking concept of how much. No, for sure. They're like, that's four ounces. And you're like, uh, it's no, 14. 14 ounces. Yeah. So, and then just basically having a little bit of, like, I firmly believe if you can manage a spreadsheet, you can lean out. And I got that one from Tom Furman who fucking made that point. I was like, it's true. So you and, say that you avoid calorie deficit. So you're putting people on so a leading protocol. What, you structure when they eat. What I like to do is structure the food. And then, uh, you know, instead, and I'm, I'm really not a fan of pulling out calories. Mm. I rather turn up and uh, energy expenditure. So like, for example, let's say you're training, you know, uh, you know, 70 minutes in the morning and you're eating 3000 calories and we weigh yourself and you know, you're losing a pound a week, which is pretty good. And then all of a sudden it stalls out. So the first thing people do is they pull calories. Um, I would pull a little bit of calorie, but more importantly, what I would do is I would add in second training. I'd be like, hey, I want you to get on the bike and I want you to do 30 minutes and just do some aerobic work just to burn some you calories. Twist some knobs around. Yeah, just to get in a caloric deficit. And then once that starts to work, then we might have to look at some other stuff. One that I worked really well for me is I would go get in the infrared sauna and I would go sit in the sauna for like 20 or 30 minutes. And that was really good. So all of a sudden, I got to a point where my leaning kind of stalled and I was like fucking with calories. I started doing stair stepping, which meant like if I was going to eat 3,000 calories a day over the course of seven days, it'd be 21,000 calories. Yep. What I started doing is, uh, and I don't eat 3,000 calories, I'd eat more than that, but I would eat 4,000 on one day, 3,000, and then I'd eat 2,000. And I would start stair-stepping calories. And then, and I knew that I would overeat, which would turn on my metabolism. Yep. I would do this, and then I would be in a deficit. And then on the days I was in a deficit, uh, I would train, and I would hit some infrared sauna, I would hit some cardio. So IR sauna, I've never heard of so that. So infrared sauna is actually um, like a big sauna, but it's not just a hot sauna. It's actually, it's infrared heat, and it burns calories, and it uh, helps you sweat. I have never even heard of that. That's yeah, interesting. It's pretty good. Um, uh, so, yeah, I started going to the infrared sauna. Where do you find that? Is there a place that uh, has it? Do you know, actually, um, the first person I ever heard about infrared sauna was uh, Brian McKenzie. He, he had one, and he was doing some infrared sauna, and he oh, said shit. it was good for recovery. And it was good for you know the body, and I, I literally 
found a place and would go to this, uh, there's a, a uh, like a, almost like what looks like a tanning salon, but it's just a bunch of infrared saunas not far from my house. And it's like 20 bucks and I go in there and sit in there for half an hour and return emails. What do you think about the other side of that, the cryo stuff? Uh, we did the cryo stuff and I like it. Um, the one thing I have, I, I like, so Tom Inkland on and I had a good conversation about it, you know, cause you're in there for about three minutes. Yeah. Like maximum, right? Yeah. Maximum three minutes. Yeah. His thing is, is it, uh, is it like drinking where it's like, do I just drink a ton for three minutes or is it better to sit in a nice, you know, at 50 degrees and do sustain? Because the so, theory is to like overshock the body's response, yeah. right? So, I mean, uh, uh, Tom, um, you know, really liked it and thought it was really good. I mean, he thought that if you could do a little bit of both, I mean, <laughs> obviously as a, you know, my deal as an NFL player, and I'll tell you the story, I don't know if I told you, but uh, I was big into contrast, which meant hot and cold. Yeah, no, I've done those. They yeah. suck. So, especially if you start cold. So, the, the uh, where I got this from was Sean Landetta, aka the boss. And uh, <laughs> and the reason that I call I pop my collar when I call him the boss is Sean Landetta was a counter in the NFL for like twenty plus years. He played for Bill Parcells and the Giants when they won all the Super Bowls. And uh, so Steve Weatherford told me that he doesn't like to be called an NFL player. He's a punter. Is that common? Who? Weatherford. Uh, we can get on him in a little bit. I'll no, think. he just was like, I'm not an NFL player. I'm a punter. No, Steve. Uh, well, he's, also, right. he's he's actually the only one, of the only guys I've ever seen wear a salmon suit. But he pulls it. It was more oh. like a teal. And no, it was salmon. He was rocking a salmon suit, <laughs> like legitimate sa pink salmon. And I looked at him, and I was like, "Are you wearing a salmon suit?" He's like, "Yeah, I make it look good." I mean, he's a fucking great shape. So he can wear the fuck. He he's wants. a wildly entertaining individual. Sorry, it's a he's a, story. Well, uh, he is my my only gripe with Steve is uh, he is so OCD. And, Incredibly so, uh, and uh, ADHD with this thing that it's almost next to impossible to have a conversation with him. Yeah, because he like the whole time I'm talking to him, he's tweeting, he's Instagramming, Snapchatting. He did like seven things of media within like three seconds, and then like we were, I was like, Louis, just trying to have a normal conversation. He was like, blah, blah, and then he ran away, and he was like, dude, like, dude turn the fucking phone. Off. His social media game is strong, dude. It's unreal. Yeah, I've never seen anybody with a fucking star for social media. It's, I mean, and the guy's everywhere. Yeah, he's like American Express everywhere you want to be. I mean, I mean, the guy's a fucking madman. But uh, and he rocks a salmon suit. And frankly, I'm a little jealous. I want a salmon suit. I'm like, we should go get those. What color would be better? How could we need to be one percent better than him? Would it be a salmon suit with like a nice little bedazzled tie? I was thinking more that? like because he was pink salmon. I'm thinking like we go like coho red salmon. All right, like real dark, dark, dark red salmon. All right, I'm in. Now, well, then you need to get like a white pair of shoes and then I'll get a white suit and a salmon pair of shoes. <laughs> it won't be like ebony and ivory. <laughs> I, I think it's a good deal. I'm, I'm excited. I, mean, I don't care. I'll do it. <laughs> well, and the other one is, is, is what if it was rocking a real like short, short you know, coat? And uh, I mean, his suit was so tight. I mean, like it was unbelievable. Like I would have blown the pants out of that sucker. But he somehow, I mean, he must have had some stretch in it. Maybe a little bit spandex. A little four-way so, stretch, hidden material in there? It's like these jeans I'm wearing. Yep, I've blown out too many pairs of jeans. I'm like, those jeans got spandex in them. I need them. There you go. Nice. But uh, what are we talking about, Luke? The IR oh, the oh, cryo. Oh, 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 okay, okay. So, so, the boss. so, the boss. so, Lee. Oh, okay. Consistency. Well, well, well. Here's here's the thing too. Is uh, everybody is going to stall out. So, like, if you're trying to pull, if you're trying to lean, no matter what it is. All of a sudden, everything's going to be going great, and then it's all of a sudden not going to be great. And when that happens, you have to either change something. You either have to adjust your macros, you either have to adjust your total calorie intake, 
either you got to up and take it down or you're going to have to increase work or you're going to have to do something like, uh, you know, just some boring low endurance cardio or even you have to jump in an infrared sauna. You have to make the knots, man. You have to make the knots. Yeah, and that's all it is. It's like, you know, tuning in the EQ to figure out which works best. No more food questions. Let's talk about cool stuff we do with training, not just training itself. Let's talk about. Yeah, like, okay, let me just say one more. One more. No, because you just hear what I said. No. Okay. Okay. It's, it's fine. And then, then uh, this is the end. Turn it. All right, Manuel wants to know your thoughts on finding out the VMR because you know you on the podcast you talked about how you found it. Was it useful? Um, and where did you where did he find it? And who, who do you ask to go find this? All right, so you can go online and find something called, I think it's the Harris-Benedict Equation. Yeah, yes, which, about that. Which will, are which equations will, pretty close based mm-hmm. off your testing? No. <laughs> so the Harris-Benedict Equation is, is something online uh, where you can figure out your BMR. So I uh, had the Harris-Benedict Equation, and I like looked at how many calories it has, and then there's a deal that you can go to, and there's different places, and what they do is they hook you up to a machine. What's BMR for people who don't know? Oh, basal metabolic rate. Basal that is metabolic. the amount of calories your body burns at rest, assuming you just laid in bed all day, that's your minimum calorie burn. So there's a machine that you can go, and what it does is, is it monitors your breathing. And based on that, and you, you breathe into this tube, it takes 12 minutes, and it'll spit you out a number, which is based on, I, I don't know how it works, but I know that based on- Wizardry? Your, yeah, wizardry. <laughs> there's a little gnome in there who yeah. gives it to you, but it spits out a recall, and it gives you your basal metabolic rate. And so the Harris Benedict, for me, it was off by almost 1,200 calories. So when I was oh wow, so the first time it had been shown to me is I was uh, got some uh, body where I got some nutrition stuff done once playing the NFL, and the, the nutrition guy I went to was like, "Hey, have you ever had this done?" I'm like, "No." Uh, he's like, "Do you even know what it is?" I'm like, "Not really." And so he hooks me up, and he goes, uh, "Any bets on uh, on what you think you are?" I'm like, "I, I couldn't tell you." He's like, "I don't know either." He goes, "I've never really tested anybody as big as you," and so he goes, "You know," and he did the equation for me, and it was like right around like 2,800 calories. That's if he did nothing. Nothing all day. Holy cow. So then I go through the breathing deal, 12 minutes. I'm at 4,400 calories a day was how much I was burning at rest. So I was eating six or 7,000 calories a day just to maintain my body weight for training. Dude, that's a fucking high, lot of high food. volume. So do you remember back in the day when I was training, how you were like, stop fucking eating? Well, because I was obviously trying to compete and beat you at everything. Oh, yeah, I, I can't going. fit that much food in. I remember uh, Andy knew me when I was still playing the NFL, and he's like, dude, stop fucking eating. I'm like, I can't. It was mind-bottling, right? Yeah. To take a, a, a term from Blades of Glory, the amount of food you would consume. I, I've never seen anything like it. What's amazing is the more food I consumed, the leaner I got. Yeah, that's, that fucking made no sense to me. That threw me for a loop, for sure. And uh, so then, um, okay, so basic metabolic rate. So uh, you can go online, and you can find some testing places. There's one here in Orange County that you go to. And they'll give you a, a, a readout. But um, the problem is, is that when you look at the Harris-Benedict equation, it's for a general population. So they're really not assuming that you're, you know, at least for me, a six foot five, you know, two hundred eighty pound athlete. It's like when you get on a BMI scale or whatever, they're like, "Oh, you're obese." So oh yeah, I, don't I think so. But well, yeah, I mean, like my BMI, I think, is like twenty nine, which puts me on the obese. And when I went to the doctor and he's like, wait a minute, you were, you know, X amount. I mean, it just doesn't work because it's all based on hip to height ratio. So uh, do I think it's valuable? Yes. And, you know, one of the easiest ways we've ever found, I mean, I know when I talked to Doc England on about it one time, he's like, just eat your BMR and, you know, let the exercise be your, you know, deficit. Yeah. And that, that's always worked pretty well. Yeah. Don't, don't put yourself into caloric deficiency. Just 
Yeah. Tweaking and, and, and the is, yeah. is weigh yourself. So, you know, like don't like, <laughs> like weigh yourself twice a week and see how it is. And I mean, just kind of start making tweaks. So it's like, good look. Yeah, I think so. Okay. What else you got? Right. Not nutrition based. All right, so not oh. nutrition based. Uh, God damn it. <laughs> all right, so here we go. This one's about nutrition. Um, no, I'm just kidding. So our boy here says, what are your thoughts on training partners, uh, gym atmosphere, and their effects on performance? Right? And this guy goes with Zach. Zach also wants to ask a question on training partners. Oh, he does. Uh, he, he basically says, he trains alone, but he's consistent with Jack Street and solid with nutrition. He's feeling like uh, his improvement is too slow. Which is a shocker. Everyone feels that way. But uh, it'll be another year in the trade before he can squat up double body weight. He's hoping to use form collar, uh, give an objective measure on his performance, push it harder rather than going by feel. Uh, work and kids make training away from home and other people's schedules problematic. I often wonder how much stronger I can be uh, with a few good training partners. Uh, Where is the question? Never. Uh, so uh, I'm just going to balance like, it with this. Never underestimate the value of a training partner. Yeah. And also never underestimate the fucking uh, devalue that a training partner can add to your deal. Uh, there's been situations where we've had numerous individuals that we've trained with that have made me better. Uh, case in point, if you're training with somebody that's a fucking go hard and they're ready to get after it, you'll let go them hard and you'll then get you after go it. hard. But the problem is, is if you have somebody in who's like fucking Eeyore, where they show up and they kick a can across the parking lot, they don't want to fucking be here. Nothing will fucking suck the life out of you more than Eeyore. So, I mean, there's been situations where I've had the, the go hard and I've had the Eeyore. And I think in terms of consistency, uh, and I really like training partners. I think it's, uh, they're, they're great to have if they're great people. Yep. Um, but if you have somebody that's Eeyore, doesn't really want to be there, it's just going through the motions, it will fucking sap you. And then the other thing, which is hard, is if you are consistently training with people that aren't stronger than you or weaker than you or that don't aren't willing to push themselves as hard that you're like, fuck dude, how oh, I'm always pushing you. There has to be a give and take. It's like a marriage. It needs to be a you know? two sided relationship. It can't. Yeah. You got to pick your training partner with somebody who's close to you. So you guys can like battle and push each other. Yeah. Cause otherwise you're like the dude doing the chasing has always got that motivation. Oh, the, worst. the guy out in front, it's just like, God damn it. Yeah. Fuck you. And so I, Andy, with that, I mean, you're, you talked a little bit about training on the podcast. Maybe you talk about, what you do for your training and kind of, like you're trying to all the world to jumps and shit like that. Yep. Do you have training partners? Well, uh, and like, I think that, they, what does that look like? Is I think your training partners, I mean, it, it seems like all the jump stuff that you've been doing, like we were talking about like the wingsuit, mm -hmm. uh, if you're the best dude out there, then what's your chance of getting better? Opposed from like, I'm sure you've gone out with like the best guys in the world. Oh, like, like Jedi's and they just put you right in your place. You're like, whoa, I thought I knew what you were doing. I thought I was jumping, but apparently I'm playing tennis. Uh, I have to play by ear, largely. I have to, uh, every time I have access to a training partner, absolutely. Because I think you just go harder in the company of others. But I just do the best I can when I'm by myself. I do travel a bunch, and so like a lot of it is in a hotel. But one of the biggest things I had to do in the last few years is like, I had to figure out what I'm training for. And I want to be able to hike in the backcountry for a couple hours. Reach, yeah, reach. With my gear on. On my back, not wearing my wingsuit or my parachute, but just like hiking along, and I would need to be able to get all the way zipped up in my stuff with my toes over the ledge. Without having a fucking heart attack. Without being physically spent, emotionally spent, mentally spent. So all of my training is based around that. And one of the things that I did to increase my enjoyment in training, which would then increase the frequency, is I dropped the intensity a little bit. Yeah. 
one of the hard things for me when I was working for CrossFit headquarters was that I was always around the gains athletes. Yeah. And I'm, well, it's, it's like, Hey dude, it's like, I don't give a fuck if we're playing checkers. I don't want to lose. I know. So, and so like, and these guys are like, they're, their physical abilities are unbelievable. And well, they're so also like 23 and they're, uh, don't have jobs. Yeah, my so brain doesn't work like that. I see yeah, performance. No, as, as my dad told me, uh, the 70 year old or the, the 18 year old gets a 70 year old trouble all the yeah. time. Don't let that shit happen. So I would just like put myself in a hole, put myself in a hole, put myself in a hole. And finally I was like, oh, stop. Like I wasn't looking forward to training. So I took an objective view of like, what the hell I'm actually trying to do. I need to be able to fly my suit, which a lot of that. That, that is technique based, which you get from flying your suit, but I want to be physically strong, as strong as possible without making the training that I'm doing detrimental to my life. Because that's all I want to do is hike around with my stuff on and go find something awesome that I can potentially leap to my death off of. Well, I'll tell you some of my uh, most memorable training experiences um, were, you know, when uh, I was competing against somebody in the weight room. Uh, you know, one of my favorite guys is we, I had a, a defensive lineman. Uh, we played with in Philly, the guy named Darwin Walker, who was a strong motherfucker. And whenever he would come in the weight room and we would bang weights, it always pushed me. And some of my most fun training idea or memories is actually training with you. With uh, I'd go down to Coronado to Andy's gym, yeah. and he would come up with these fucking dastardly things. I'd always do an 800-meter run because that's how I would catch him. I knew he would destroy me on any barbell, <laughs> and I would just run like a bat out of hell to try to get ahead. And uh, no, we had some really epic things. I mean, But that we, was the thing that you remember, though. It was fun. Yeah. Like, not this, I, I can't do it anymore. Like, I don't know. I'm just at a point in my life where I cannot put myself in super painful situations willingly, like, every well, day. I, I do, can do it selectively. I do remember a CrossFit <laughs> workout we did where Allison NYC destroyed us. She wiped the floor with me. Yeah, and me she too. Did. Yeah, she killed us in handstand push-ups. I mean, Andy and I were, like, on three handstand push-ups, and she's like, time! And we're like, this broad did, like, 100 handstand push-ups. Crush me. Uh, I've never been the same. I didn't see her do any of them, but she's bringing time. So <laughs> all I know is Lisa Lugo was standing there coaching us in a massive pair of Chanel glasses and a belt buckle that looked like she had just fucking got off the set of rhinestone cowboy. I don't even know what rhinestone cowboy is. It was all fucking rhinestones. Cowboy. I was like, what the fuck is this broad with these like massive Gucci fucking glasses? In my mind, Luke, it starts with what are you training for? And then let's just take a dose of reality. Like, the guy is super fired up to get his double body weight back squat. Like, why? I, I think that's a great well, goal. It's but a no, performance major. No, it is. And I totally get that. But please don't tell me you're sacrificing enjoyment elsewhere in your life to go for a performance metric that's not actually improving your life, if that makes any sense. Well, I mean, maybe he um, – maybe... I think it's also maybe he, he enjoys the training as an outlet for him. Well, and, and in that case, it's positive. So that was, but that's a positive outlet. That's a positive well, impact. So I mean, they're, judging yourself negatively and saying I'm not good enough because I don't have that, just because you want to have that and not apply it anywhere else in your life, to me is like a long-term loss in the well, making. It, it was, uh, it was, I, you know, I, I saw Uncle Dave this weekend, and we were rapping a little bit about uh, his training stuff, and uh, he made a funny comment to me. He goes, "Man, he goes, I've, uh, I've never seen you uh, as slimmed down and as uh, in the good shape as you were as when we went to Mid South." And I was like, "Really?" He goes, yeah, man, when I went to go pick you up, I thought it was your little brother when I first picked up at the airport. And I was like, well, yeah, I had to go fucking run and gun. Like, I dieted like a motherfucker. I, yeah. I was out there, like, hitting all this endurance stuff. Daddy's bringing his AG. I was like, dude, what do you think? I want to be fucking – I knew we were going to have to be mobile and jumping over things, shooting, running out of cars. And I was like, dude, I'm, I'm going to train for the task uh, at hand. And if that's what the task at hand calls for, then that's what it demands. And I think, like, um, 
periodically you have to set some form of training goal, like something that uh, you know Luke and I have been talking about is you know this this fall is uh, actually going on like uh, a bow hunt, like elk hunt, like and actually being able to. I just got my bow about three weeks ago. I saw you want to avoid that. I, I, I don't yeah, know if you'll you know have enough vacation. How about this? I'll just slide in and take a slug. That's because I don't have to worry about vacation. Ooh. You know what I mean? Uh, and, uh, I just picked up a Hoyt Carbon Defiant. That thing is, I, I sit in the backyard every day and drill arrows. I have a PSC bow, which is the only one that makes a 30, uh, 31 and a half inch draw. It doesn't surprise me that your abnormally large appendages <laughs> are problematic when it comes to a bow. So I, you, that guy's got a tape measure out. He's like, I can see his face. He's like, sir, we only have one bow for you. this might be a problem. Well, no, he, he's like, there's a bow called the PSE Freak. It's the only one for you. I'm like, I'm in. I like the Freak. Hey, at least they make it. Isn't and, it? Well, oh, man. That, so what would you have done if they didn't make that? Uh, I'd have to have a custom bow. Oh, and so... Uh, I really like it because you have to relax. Well, think about this. So I had so I, I had a bow when I was in Kansas City, and I left, and I hadn't shot a bow, and eight seven eight nine years yeah and i went in uh we were going to go bow hunting and i went down and actually you know went and got measured um, yeah know, i did, did the full did, thing like yeah. custom, custom so, cut arrows the whole nine yards so then i uh, went down there and i hadn't shot literally pull it up and like bring it up and pull it and again like uh, they sighted everything got everything all dialed got, got my uh, sights all lined up and like i was fucking just keyholing these shots i put them in a really nice group and the lady's like, man, how, uh, how often do you shoot? I'm like, I pulled this thing in. Every probably. seven years. Yeah, seven or eight <laughs> years. And she was tripped out. And I was like, but I shoot pistols. Yeah, it's and, 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 and like the idea of like, you know, side alignment, being able to this, relax, understand mechanics. Surprise break is like one of the biggest ones. Just sit there and slowly apply pressure. And then it just goes off. I mean, yeah. the other one is. Uh, so where are we going hunting with that, Luke? Uh, Oregon. What, what, what animal? Uh, Roosevelt elk. The biggest elk in the world. I they're like eight to, uh, eight to twelve hundred pounds. Yeah, um, those will kill us if we miss. I know. Okay, so I'll hide behind a tree and I'm going to try to hit it in the <laughs> leg to get it to charge you, and I want to see your best offensive line moves as the thing is like. <laughs> when are we going? I'm in. Like, actually, I've uh, already talked to Jim. Like, I'm. Uh, we'll go this. Uh, it, it, it'll be in the fall because the uh, the season's in the fall. So uh, I'm my, in. My uh, my buddy Sean and Joe uh, they live up in Coos Bay. And he invited I've us been to Coos Bay. I flew, I flew a plane in Coos Bay a bunch of times. Yeah, so that's where we're going to go. And then there's uh, just north of there, there's a big national forest, and that's where they hunt the Roosevelt. Nice. And uh, so I, I took about a 275, 300 pound elk this year with a, with a rifle. Yeah. And uh, these things are triple that size. The, the irony of that is I wanted the bow hunt, and uh, we chased those fuckers for hours. And that's couldn't what, get within three or 400 yards of them. That's what I like about the bow. Like, I saw, I had never really shot one. This actually kind of started with like texting back and forth with Joe. Like he's an obviously bow, avid bow hunter. And I kept hearing people, kept hearing people like, you gotta get a bow, you gotta get a bow. Yep. So finally I texted him, I'm like, hey, is bow hunting awesome or is this a code word for dudes jerking each other off in the forest? Like play golf? Yeah. And he's like, no, dude, it's legit. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna check it out. I fired one arrow through that thing, and you can instantly tell. The, the distances yeah. are micro. And then, and so the, my favorite school that I went to when I was a SEAL was sniper school. We so said it started with two months of shooting and then two months of stalking. And I loved the stalking because it made you better at being a SEAL. You had to like understand cover and concealment and dead space and terrain. And that I think is what I would enjoy more about hunting elk because yeah, go ahead. You can, oh, you can see that elk? So when we were cool, get to within sixty yards so you can shoot that elk. Well, I mean, we were uh, we were up in uh, Central California and it was uh, fucking ravaged by the uh, uh, 
by the drought. Yep. So, I mean, there was zero cover. I mean, it was open. Oh, yeah. And so we, we literally. And they're not dumb. No. And so we like saw them. There, there was like a big herd of over on that on that and you ridge. You only had a bow with you at this point. Well, no, uh, we we figured out we were gonna try to get them and bow hunt. Yeah. And so all of a sudden we like take off running this way, and we're like fucking humping. And all of a sudden we like get to where like the top of the hill to try to intersect them. Yeah. And those fuckers were like 400 yards past us. Yeah. And so we ended up going back to the truck and uh, getting the rifles. And then we came out the next morning, and I, I ended up with uh, my handy stump of proof through the windbag, knocking down a, a pretty nice house. Yeah, probably about. It was probably a uh, 475, I think. We ranged her out. And, nice. Uh, Iron sights? Uh, yeah, with a pistol. Perfect. No. I know. So, no. Are you kidding me? Max Ordnate? So, <laughs> let me tell you, Andy kitted out my 300 wind mag, and it has a, uh, oh, yeah, it's, it's got a neck horse, like, like five and a half to, what's it like? Five and a half to twenty-one by fifty-six. Something crazy. Oh, yeah. something, something crazy. No so, so, yeah. so I like crank it down, and like I'm like looking yeah, at like the twinkle in her eye, and uh, I put a shot right behind her arm, and just just as I pull the trigger, she like flinches and hits her in the shoulder, and she goes down and uh, broke her shoulder. Yeah, that round at that distance is like that, there's some kinetic energy on oh, that round. I mean, it literally knocked her down. But um, <laughs> but that's yeah. like, and so I mean, that's awesome. Like. Shooting stuff with rifles is great, but I, I, it's the, the, the challenge because I mean, if you go out with a rifle, like, I mean, come on, like anything within a thousand yards, like you're, you're going to hit it for you, but most people watching, I mean, this is the same guy who told me I don't really even start doping my scope and even checking my range book until we get past a thousand for, yeah, for like 300 mag for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, dude, you, you were telling me what 308 out to a thousand and then you pulled Fucking Excalibur out of your bag. Yeah, seven six two until out to about a thousand. And then, yeah, uh, then, and, and then actually, uh, the party uh, stage. What is your longest shot with a with a three hundred one mag? Eighteen hundred and twenty one yards. So eighteen hundred twenty one yards with a three hundred one mag. What was the elevation? We were about ten thousand feet, and there was about a fifteen degree down angle. So I had reduced effect of gravity plus thin atmospherics. I mean, I think at sea level, the round would have been subsonic by the time it hit. So. I mean, there was a lot of, and again, it, it was luck yeah. for one. <laughs> let's start with let's start with the facts. <laughs> it was lucky. <laughs> Two, I shot multiple rounds at the same group of people to achieve that hit. Yeah. Three, the guy that I hit wasn't the one I was aiming at. <laughs> so, His buddy that was twenty feet away yes. just not fell down. You're so like, I mean, I gotta be honest. You're like, like yeah. It. yeah, log it, motherfucker. Zingo, but. Again, let's put some a little bit of honesty into that. I mean, the guys have made three thousand yard shots with fifty cal, but it's just well. Different I mean, dude, uh, what, what was it that um, uh, was it Brit dude? I think with a three thirty eight Makua. Yeah, that's right. Uh, like, dude, look. Yeah. But again, so I don't want to do that. I, I like I sit in my backyard with the bow every day, and I'm shooting. And I just love the fact that like you want to be tense, but you can't be tense. You got to relax your shoulders, and it's well, all is. the same marksmanship principles, like. Find the cheek wall, like you know, put in yeah. the knuckle right, right at the base of the of the, yeah. the base that you're like, all of that stuff, and then it's like, you squeeze it off, and the arrow didn't go where you wanted it to. Like, just go look well, in the mirror. Well, it's the, the only reason why it didn't. The, the, the other one I love too is uh, you can actually see the arrows, you know, when it leaves like the bullet. You know, oh, so, for sure. You know, I mean, unless you're going to bend the bullet, like yeah. like in the Doctor Man. It's tough to whip the bow. Yeah, I'm working on that shot. <laughs> My neighbors don't like it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Be like fucking crack it. But we should go. I mean, you want to talk, talk about an exercise in patience and like yeah. I'm in. concealment. I don't know if Luke will have enough vacation days. You know, uh, we, we we're only 
mid five month, Lucas effectively taken about seven weeks of vacation. Let's just call months. it. Are, are, are you at seven okay. weeks? All right, let me go Let's ahead. Let's just, just call it the Andy and John hunting trip without Luke. That's what we'll put it on our calendar. I don't think that it should be held out. <laughs> the Andy and John hunting trip, Luke goes to. Because the travel I'm doing is, I go to, so I go to CrossFit the fall and I have a blast in Belfast next. And it happens to be St. Patrick's Day. I'm going to spreading the words of the John Mulhorn. Well, so go out there, you know, gallivanting around. Luke the is Luke. Luke what does that have to do with our hunting trip? Luke has had a very curious time in his life in that all of his friends are getting married. And unfortunately, Luke is a true bro. Like, he's everybody's best man. And so Luke has got like this huge group of friends I'm that the are best all. Man for well, I'm but. Mostly, like the best usher. Yeah. So, so, so Luke is. How old are you, Luke? Uh, 33. So Luke's at that point where everybody's getting married, and so he has to go to all these weddings. And so all of a sudden, he hit me up. He's like, "Hey, uh, I got to go to Punta Cana this week." I'm like, "We have a summer over there?" He's like, "No, it's another wedding." And I'm like, "Did you just said yes?" Yeah, you should just be like, "Yeah, yeah, we totally got a seminar on Punta Cana this week." And I'll be like, "Oh, great. Let me know. I'll go send me a certain picture." I wouldn't fucking know. Uh, but yeah, he, um, Luke is, uh, you know, he's he's pretty liberal with his vacation days. And, Do you have a bow, Luke? Yeah. Uh, yes, I have both, and I've also, as human resources and human resources, I've also instantiated a vacation policy where you let the manager know after your vacation <laughs> that you went on vacation. Do you own camouflage clothing to wear on the Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. So, so I bought a boat, uh, and I was so excited to go shoot it, and I didn't have ready to go, so uh, the company bought the boat. It's a write off. Yeah. So we, we got and that was in that I traded in two vacation days, I believe, for that. Yeah. As well. yeah. So we'll go hunting, and if we can't find any animals, I'll just go out 30 minutes before and I'll hunt you guys. We'll play man on man. But like, you know, what, like, what was it like the sniper movie or whatever it is? Oh, or? God. Don't even start it with the movie crap. Well, yeah, they're I mean, all bad. They're all so bad. How about this? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift it real quick. Uh, there's a question here regarding the hunt. Uh, yeah. Are you planning on incorporating the training template that? For the, for the rock, for the height, Here's the, and John uh, are we planning on incorporating that into a training cycle for field strong? No, no, because the training I do every day makes me ready for exactly. that. Exactly. Like, yeah. uh, like Luke and I had this conversation. Would you specifically have to train for this? No. Absolutely you, not. You, you know what you do? You should be able to do your normal training yeah. and then be able to go out and just fucking make it happen. Uh, the only thing that, I would add a little bit of weighted backpack stuff yeah. over uneven well, terrain. Well, you should be able to go out and uh, put on your gear and go walk yeah. for a couple hours. Uh, you know, even in Stanley Street or, the, or around your town. But uh, even from a perspective of breaking in your shoes, yeah. that's a good idea. Like, there's more than yeah. just training involved. Yeah, in just that. making sure you don't fuck yourself yeah, up, like, totally. like uh, ferrying out your gear. But just um, Luke, I'll I'll kill you. There and leave you if you hold this behind. I don't doubt it. I will. You'll you'll get left. Luke, if, I'm, if I'm getting, if I'm going to get killed by anybody, I will spray you with honey well, and leave you in a bear infested area if you're slowing us down. We had a guy uh, hit me up for some training and I helped him develop a template. He his goal was he was going to backpack in three days and he was going to take like uh, like something big. Like I forgot what it was. It was like a, it was a, uh, an elk or a caribou or something yeah. good size. And then what he wanted to do is he wanted to quarter it yeah. and drag it out in pieces. He was gonna it was gonna be cold, so he was gonna bear. I was gonna say how it stay good that long. Well, it was cold, okay. so it was like you know below thirty two. So he was just gonna bear bag it, and then he was gonna drag it out. And he's like, you know, this thing might be, and it might have been something like a Roosevelt. He's like, it's gonna be a thousand pounds. What do you think? And I was like, well, what I would do is they sell these sleds. 
Yeah, if, yeah. Right, so I would quarter up as much as you could feel comfortable, strap it in, and I think you drag it out power walk style with sled. And so the guy- How would you protect what you left behind? You bear bag it. So you put it in a bag, throw, it up, throw it up there, and you okay. put it in a tree. And so he- I've never uh, hunted animals, so. Well, I guess it depends on your definition of animals, but <laughs> I've never hunted anything with horns. <laughs> with, uh, with, with us? Correct. Yeah. So that's what he did, and uh, the guy ended up dragging it out, and then literally went back and got the rest of it, dragged it out, and I think it took him a bunch of days. And he was like, oh, it was fucking great. But dude, but, that's good training. That's awesome. Like that to me, the sled out, like there's my training day. Yeah. Like get after it. So 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 what we did is I had him get a uh, a rogue uh, you know sled drag, and he put a plate on there, yep. and literally just dragged that shit for miles, and then he just slowly added weight to it, and was like, and I'm like, here's the deal, dude. You're you're probably gonna drag this shit probably about you know 400 yards. And you're gonna have to sit down and rest. And I'm like, it's not like you're gonna power walk that bitch out for three days. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, and it's not rocket surgery. Yeah. And you know what? As long as you can just fucking be tougher than everybody. But I think where people just fail is the idea that, you know what? I don't know how far I'm going to get. I'm going to go as far as I can. So, John, Zach wants to know, do we have anything planned in the Northeast, Maine, New Hampshire, upstate New York? For what? For hunting. I don't know. In Texas. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, is, is, this, uh, is, this, is this Zach Evan Yeah. Oh, so Zach also, do you're going to laugh at this. Zach shot me a question about he, uh, he has a forerunner, and so he wanted to know if he should spend money to lift his forerunner. He didn't actually send I swear to God, he did. No, he didn't. Or he should save his money and try to buy a surplus fucking Hummer. Humvee. I think both are terrible options. Uh, I wouldn't put money into a forerunner. One, because I'm, uh, I don't really like forerunners. Like, I think like the old uh, Toyota like 80 straight axle uh, pickups are cool. And I've seen people do some amazing things with those. I'm not really into the forerunner, so I wouldn't waste money on that. Uh, but I also like uh, straight axle vehicles for off-roading. And uh, but the problem, and I've been fortunate to to have been around some Humvees, is uh, they are fucking abused. Oh, for sure. So um, and my, I mean, they're just it's an expensive vehicle from soup to nuts. Well, I mean, you know what? And um, I'm pretty familiar with like the old Detroit diesels, like the six twos and the six fives. I just don't really like, I mean, uh, my, my Blazers are surplus. Um, you yeah. know, um, my, my, my Chuck beat my M1009. Uh, uh, and uh, since I got it, I have put one-ton axles in it. I put a new motor, put a new, new transmission, new transfer case, new wheels. I've completely rebuilt everything. I mean, there's really nothing left other than the original the shell and the, yeah. car, and the car thing. Um, so, uh, you know, I, if it was me and I could start over, uh, I would look for something that came stock ready to fight. Uh, that's why I like like a Chevy K31 ton pickup because dude, those came with one ton axles. They're all pretty, uh, yeah. uh, pretty stout. Um, also, um, I'm just really not into uh, independent front suspension and those type of trucks. So if I was Zach, I would tell you to go look for like an 80 straight axle Toyota truck. To answer his hunting question though, yes, John and I will come up there at any time that he arranges a hunt. Luke, you can hold down the fort here. Cool. So we're in. We'll send, we'll send pictures. All right, do you guys want like a training question or do you want to get into the psychology of some buds type stuff? Oh, yeah, let's do that. All right, so this is, uh, this is from our boy Tess. He oh. said, all these questions are weak. Let's get into some psychology. You're weak. Text line. Buds and pussy, uh, psychology, buds and pussification of America. Oh, God. What is this is a question or a statement? What's more beneficial for getting, uh, getting the most out of people? Uh, Positive or negative reinforcement. 
I imagine the purpose of buds is to weed out uh, the weak versus developmental toughness. What are some characteristics of people that made it through? Were you able to sense this on day one? What are some strategies you Holy use for developing mental toughness in individuals? Um, Andy Stumpf, and I know this from actually knowing Andy for a number of years and seeing him in his element, uh, is not a fan of positive reinforcement. And I'll give you a little story. I was fortunate enough to be invited down to the <laughs> right, the, uh, for the uh, <laughs> pool cup. Uh, yeah, for, for the, the pool test. And what it is is there's a, I guess you could say there's a, you know, a grand canyon of, of, of tests where if you don't get through this pool test, you are no longer a fucking seal. And if you it's get the through last, this, it's the last. So it's after Hell Week. It's in second phase. It's in the diving. Second phase is where we teach open circuit, which means bubbles. Closed circuit, no bubbles diving and I think it was the fourth week or the third week we administer a week-long series of tests if yep. you make it through these tests you're pretty much high 90th percentile chance you'll eventually weeks. one day earn your tribe so, so it's like the last it's the last one of the last main wickets or hurdles that they have to get over. so Andy hits me up and says hey I want you to come on down you gotta fucking see this and I'm like awesome if you're calling me I'm driving down so we go down and it's a pool test and mind you it's a big massive fucking Olympic pool there's like an underground deal with glass so that the instructors can watch. And what they're doing is they're dropping these young recruits or uh, potential buds, victims down into the pool. Students, what they do, students, 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 students. Sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry, students. And then what they're doing is they're presenting them with problems, and then they're forcing the kids to have to problem solve. One of which is I'm going to tie your regulator in a hundred knots, and then you're going to have to flip your stuff up, undo the knots, and try to do it without passing out. But you got to lay out the context of the test. So that was the last day or the last two days of a week. And we graduate them into more complex exercises. Yes. We're not introducing a knot that can't be undone. There is one knot <clears throat> that can't be undone, but that's the end of the test. And all throughout the week, we reinforce the procedures that we expect them to follow, whether they can breathe or not, whether they're panicked or not. The whole test is about inducing panic and can you – maintain your head on your shoulders and follow the procedures. Because if you deviate, you fail and you're sure. done, you're gonna get pulled. So that's, it's, it's not random by any stretch. And it takes about two to three classes, which is about a, a third of the time that you're an instructor, just to be under the instruction of another instructor to be able to administer the test. I mean, it's very nuanced. Oh, yeah. no, it looks psychotic, I agree, well, but it's very nuanced. Well, let's give you my perception. So I'm out there, I'm watching, and they're taking these kids down. And they were, you know, coming up behind them, you know, taking their mats, starting the regulators, doing different things, and the kids have to problem solve. And uh, one kid who uh, ended up not being able to problem solve all of a sudden blacks out. And so there's a bunch of divers around. They pull him to the surface, throw him on the deck, and uh, the corpsman or the doctor comes running over, and he starts doing CPR. And this kid is out completely, and I'm watching this. Like, oh, my God, this kid's going to die. All of a sudden, he starts banging on the kid's chest, screaming, live, live, and this kid spits out water and comes to life, and uh, that's Navy medical at its finest, live, and uh, Fail. The, kid, the, line. the kid looks around and goes, did I pass, and Andy looks at him and goes, no, you fucking failed, get the fuck out of here, and uh, the kid literally was almost dead, live, comes back to life, and the first thing he hears is, he failed. And um, that was a heavy dose of reality. And I asked Andy about it. And he's like, you know, uh, we are not in the business of trying to coddle anybody 
or help them along. What we're trying to do is weed people out so that we can find the people that truly belong here because we have a responsibility to protect not only uh, you know this brotherhood that we're in, but also this young kid might go to a team that one of my best friends is at and he might be in a platoon with them. Or that I might go to. Or that he might be at it. Yeah. And so we have a responsibility to almost safeguard what we're doing here. And if they don't fucking live up to it, then we don't want them here. And um, it was definitely one of the more intense things. I'm actually pretty sure Mackenzie teared up and then left. He was pretty upset about it. He didn't want to be around it. For me, I was like, you know what? I I come from a, a not a very kind and gentle place. And, you know, no, nobody was going to offer you a hand or help you from where I came from. And, uh, you know, seeing it in this environment. But you know what? I mean, these guys are gatekeepers asking people to do one of the most difficult jobs on the planet. It's not for everybody. And it shouldn't be for everybody. There should be a high fucking barrier of entrance. And so, just a case in point, uh, and I'm sure Andy will jump in on this, but uh, I don't strike you as the kind of gentle or the, the coddling or the uh, positive reinforcement type. You know, I, I actually wrote a few of these things down to make sure that I cover them in the question, but there is a role for positive reinforcement and there is a role for negative reinforcement. And I think it depends on who you're teaching and when and why. For my kids, I try not to use negative reinforcement because they're at a malleable age and I'm trying to, to raise them into productive members of society. And I think you have to temper the positive versus the negative. When I was a buds instructor, I didn't, I, I don't know if I would say I, I defaulted to the negative motivation or the negative reinforcement. I was just very clear. This is the standard. And if you don't meet the standard, I'm going to tell you, you don't. And if you do, I'm going to tell you that you do. I administered a very hard test, but the people who passed it, passed it. The people who failed it, failed it. So it's not, it's not a matter of which one is better. It, it's a matter of knowing that both are tools. And there's plenty of times in buds, especially when you would work hell week and you would go and you would talk to a guy who was obviously struggling. And you're like, Hey man, you can do this. Not I'm not going to tell him that you can do it. Just like, Hey man, just take a breath. All right. Think about what's going on right now and how long you've wanted to be here and what the consequences are going to be if you make a bad decision right now. In my mind, that's positive reinforcement. I'm not going to sit there and say you're special and you're a unique snowflake because that's not what these people are training to do. Like, it's, like you said, you laid it out pretty well. It's a high consequence, very serious job, but there is a role for positively motivating people, but I'm not going to stand up in front of a class of 60 dudes and be like, you guys are so awesome. Thanks for volunteering. Well, but, uh, like, like, isn't that, you know, like, so this is what, what we uh, what we kind of run into today, where this idea of like everybody deserves to succeed, everybody you know gets participation medal. medals. Yeah, the participation yeah, I medals. Think it's terrible. I mean, we see it all the time, especially in our own stuff, where uh, you know, like one of my favorite times in this world was the original CrossFit football uh, website comment section. It was uh, one of the more brutal. Uh, disagreeable places because people would come on there and ask questions who obviously were Good. either searching for uh, handholding or weren't or didn't want to do any research and people would eviscerate them and like the amount of butt hurt that would flow out of that thing was hysterical I mean like there were times where all of a sudden I got texted and be like dude you gotta go check out CrossFit football and like dude we would jump in there and uh, dude people were vicious in those days and now we've kind of evolved into this kind and gentle society and, um, you know, I don't know if it's good or bad. I mean, I, I don't think you have to kick everybody in the teeth, but I just don't think. You can't. That's what I'm saying. There's a place and time for both. Yeah. You have to take a look at what you're trying to accomplish. So so mental toughness, and can you tell just by looking at somebody, 
No. And that based that off what I was talking about, the first evolution of every blood's class, these dudes who look like they're chiseled out of marble, raise their hands, say they're going to be there. But the point of buds is to push you to your lowest point and beyond it and see what you do. That's what the instructors do. We push and we push and we push and we push and we get them to a place that sucks. And then we ask them to do hard things and we sit back and we watch the decisions that they make. So, you, and, and people ask me all the time, do you think my son could be a SEAL? I have no idea. It's the answer I give them every time. I have no idea. So when I was, uh, when I owned Balboa, we had a, a young kid who came to us when he was about 16 years old and told me he wanted to be a SEAL. And I remember the, uh, you know, Newport Beach, normal kid, he said he wanted to be a SEAL. And at that time, uh, Bo Bergner was working for me. Yep. And so uh, part of his deal was I told Bo, I'm like, he wants to be a SEAL. And Bo was like, fucking, let's go. And Bo, you know, I've been a SEAL and gone through a lot of trials and tribulations and ended up working his way out of the teams. And so I put Bo in charge of working with this kid. And he would fuck with him every day. I want you to run down to the beach. I want you to fucking jump in the water, roll back Sandy and come back. And he just worked with him. And then sure enough, the kid goes to college, comes out, uh, enlists in the Navy. And, uh, you know, gets into the SEAL teams. He comes back and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to SEAL teams. I'm like, good luck. Um, ironically, I get a phone call from Uncle Dave. And what do we know? The kid was going to Uncle Dave's platoon. And so Brewer. Unfortunate. So, so Brewer, <laughs> hysterical. Brewer like, I looks at him. For the fact that dude's going to get just demolished on a well, daily basis. The, so the best is uh, he looks and he's like, where are you from? Newport Beach. Hmm, you know, and John? he's like, and he, and he goes, he goes, yeah, I trained at John's gym. Yeah. And the hilarious part is Uncle Dave was his chief. And uh, I asked Dave about him and he goes, you know what? The kid is uh, hard. He goes, the kid was literally no questions, no ask. I mean, if you can march up that mountain, I want you to march up that mountain. And he goes, you know, he goes, I wouldn't say he is the, uh, the brightest dude in the world. He's not dumb, but you know what? He keeps his mouth shut and he just fucking is hard. And you know what? He's like, he's a great seal and he works his ass off. Now, if you had told me how many 16 year old kids that, that, that I have met, that, that you've met, I mean, people like want to be a SEAL that never get there. Um, you know, and I, I remember uh, when we were at that same pool test, um, there was uh, guys in uniform just standing around the pool. Yeah. And they were just like sentries almost, just like guarding it. And I asked Andy, I was like, what's up with these guys just standing there? And Andy's like, I don't fucking know. Let's go ask him. Remember you walked up to that kid and you were like, what's your deal? That's right. He just quit. Yeah. He goes, uh, so what they were doing is they make – the guys that quit come back in uniform. Yeah, hey, you have to sign official paperwork. And yeah. they basically make them stand there and watch while their paperwork is getting yeah. processed. You can quit in the moment, but the paperwork, because it's a military bureaucratic system, yeah, you give them that time. You're like, okay, come back. And then you got to sign your John Hancock on the line. And so we went up and talked to this kid, and it was pretty interesting. Zandy's like, what's your deal? And he goes, well, I quit. And he goes, why did you quit? Couldn't take it. And he was like, why did you want it? We actually got to talk to this kid. Uh, about, you know, it wasn't what he wanted and this, and this kid gave every excuse. And I cannot imagine the amount of shame that he had had. And I could see it in his face for the rest of his life. And, yeah. And as he said, for the rest of your life, you quit. And, uh, you know, one of the best lines I've ever said is like, you know what? I want you to turn around and face the wall. I want to look at you. And the kid like, turned around. And it's like, dude, it's a serious, it's a serious situation. I mean, you're putting yourself out there. And I can't imagine being in that situation and like, you know, kind of having to live on that. I mean, I've, I've met guys all the time that, you know, uh, we're good football players, didn't get a chance. And like the fact that they didn't get to go on and play in the NFL, or even if they did get to go play, just never got to get on the field. I always think, fuck, that's a shame to miss that opportunity to come that far and not be able to make it happen. Yeah. Or to quit because you make, or to not have it happen because of a decision you made at your lowest point in a moment that affects the trajectory of the rest of your life. Yeah. And that's, you know, mental toughness, the aspect of that. It's like, 
mental toughness. What I is think, mental toughness? Because, you know, like you hear people. It's just, I, I don't If you I, were to ask me, it's the ability to endure. But to me, a lot of that has to do with how you approach problems, how cool. you how you look at achieving goals yeah. and how you process those goals. If you, you know, how do you eat a whale, right? You ever heard the term? By the, one by the time. That, I mean, how is that any less mentally tough than making it through buds? If you literally tried to eat a whale and had to do it a bite at a time or make it through buds a day at a time, I mean, it's the same goddamn thing. Well, the other one is, is um, I was fortunate. I don't know if I was fortunate or not, but uh, I played in the hottest game in NFL history. Uh, we played uh, September 1, noon, Dallas, open air stadium. Uh, and the turf was like 163 degrees. You guys can go look this up. And uh, um, they told us before we came out, they were like, if you lay down on the, on the turf, your body heat or your You're going to get burned? Yeah, well, no, your core temperature is going to go up and you could fucking die. So don't lay down. You get hurt. And so we, we go out there for that noon game, and it was fucking terrible. Like, my feet were so hot, I was squirting water in my shoes to try to cool my feet down. And people were like, oh, you know, how, how did you guys play? And I'm like, what other fucking choice do we have? Yeah. It's like, a, you know, man with a problem or man with a choice, man with a problem. And you know what? We went out there, we ended up beating him. And it was fucking terrible. And we got done. And like people are like, oh, you know, was there ever a point in your mind that you were going to quit? And we're like, yeah. no. it never entered my mind. There was never a point where I thought, I don't want to be here. I'm going to leave. And I, I think that's the problem is that, you know, like uh, if, you, if you just never quit anything, it becomes the habit. And I think what happens is this mental t- toughness is just the evolution of a lot of not quitting. Yeah, it's incremental. Like messing with a 16-year-old kid and seeing what he can tolerate and then – adding to that a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. So yeah. like the linear progression of toughness. <clears throat> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so Andy, I want to jump uh, back Luke, to Luke, Bud's question. So this is, this, it has to do with <laughs> Bud's. Uh, the Washington, did you see the Washington Post article that was posted about Bud's? And the kids? Yes. So, I mean, Two of them died after leaving Bud's, one of them yeah. died. So yeah. I'll give you a little extra here. Uh, I don't know died three out of the last four ABCL training. Which is stuff inaccurate. Two of them had already quit training. One yeah. of them committed suicide. The other guy died, and then he was drunk and he wrecked his vehicle. So they did not die in training. Right. So this is clearly like I'll let you kind of dice this apart. But uh, uh, with one drunken day to go, during pool exercise, another committing suicide after failing to complete the U.S. military's most demanding training uh, or military's most demanding training program. The rash of death raises questions about the safety of trainees and whether the Navy is providing adequate supervision for those approximately 80% of trainees who drop out. I mean, many of them despondent after years of hope and preparation and months of intense training. So this kind of goes to the thing like, this is a lifelong dream and then they're out. So with that said, well, I guess it was a lifelong dream. Throughout the years, it's called raised, uh, call raised deaths, like, or is it just that people are coming in underprepared? And uh, what's the mental screening process to get accepted to buds? And do you think, I know there's like a lot of questions here, is wanting it too much costing it, costing these kids that are, that are making it? So I'll go backwards. I don't, I can't speak intelligently about the mental screening process sure. because when I joined in 96, I went to boot camp and like the fourth week of boot camp, I took, uh, it was like pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, run, swim. Pass, here's your piece of paper. Go pick a school that, in case you fail out of Buds, you'll go to the, do that job. I went to that school and then went to Buds. Like, there wasn't a mental aspect other than I, I don't even think they give you a psychological profile when you join. Uh, I know that that process has changed a lot, but I've been out of that long enough. I cannot speak intelligently at all to that. Other than I know they've been giving psych assessments to guys because they've been researching what type of 
mentality or sports background or competitive background leads to more success. Uh, as far as monitoring guys who don't make it through, yeah, I think that sounds like a no-brainer because the vast majority of guys who go there are not going to make it through. However, you know, one of those guys went to the gas lamp Marriott downtown San Diego and climbed over the railing and jumped off. I don't know how much monitoring of people who are allowed to leave and go do what they want to do is actually going to prevent somebody from doing that. It's really hard, much like a suicide bomber, to stop somebody who's willing to throw their life away. Uh, <clears throat> so do you think that wanting it too much, like, would, could that potentially be... How could, you want, how could you want it too much? I don't know. Maybe it's part of the psych evaluation or something. Yeah, but I mean, like, they just lie about give me an example of something that you wanted too much that it was negative in your drive and desire to get it. Yeah, I don't. I mean, if you, how can you want it too much? If you want it too much, and it's all consuming for you, then you wouldn't quit in the down moment. Because in the down moment, you would remember why you're there in the first place. So I don't know how wanting it too much could be negatively, negatively impacting. I don't know. Maybe I'm an asshole though. The jury's out on that one. Uh, as far as deaths in training, here's, you know, here's the thing that trips people out. I think people should die in training, not because the death is important, but because it shows that you're. Training is serious enough and that the consequences are high enough that sometimes accidents occur because we're not training for the Philharmonic Orchestra. Well, I mean, uh, like, that's kind of where I'm confused. I mean, like, you guys aren't going over there to, like, you know, win the hearts and minds with fucking candy yeah, bars. We live in a society where it's like, it's like they want a zero defect, no fail, politically correct environment. But the reality is, is that when you do the job, you go into a high defect, occasionally fail, extremely high risk, non-politically correct environment. So it's like, it, it's, it, the whole thing is, I mean, it's, it's hard to, to justify and talk to people about because all the, especially to the family of the person who died, which I mean, it's obviously tragic that he died while in training and that shouldn't be overlooked, but people die in training there about every two or three years. Yeah. And cool. when they stop dying in training, my, my, thought process is is that the training is no longer dangerous enough or serious enough or hard enough yeah. as much as that sucks that somebody has to sacrifice their life to reinforce that point but I don't think there's any other way around it well I mean we um you know we had a deal in the NFL where um, you know Corey Stringer uh, who was a, a, a big offensive lineman that played for the Vikings he ended up dying during practice and he had come in overweight and they blamed it on a veteran and, uh, and some like uppers because he, had, he had, probably he, didn't help. He had but, come in overweight, yeah. and he was out of shape, and it was fucking hundred plus degrees out, and they were practicing and doing normal stuff, and uh, you know, not enough water breaks, not enough battling ordeal, and he ends up going over. And so at that point, the NFL reacted and they banned all of Fedrin yeah. he played. And like I remember thinking, like, okay, uh, you know, part of your responsibility as an NFL player is to come in in shape and to you know be able to uh, you know understand the demands of what's presented in front of you. I'm like, yeah, it's sad. And be died. responsible and take responsibility well, but, for the condition that you show up in. Yeah. I mean, yeah. dude, I, I, I looked at How it like the ephedrine, like contributing factor, you know, not necessarily causal factor. Yeah. So, well, I mean, you know, and, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was a sad deal and, uh, I, I, I'm not really sure if, uh, his family sued. I mean, of course everybody sues now. Anything bad happens. Very litigious. And then you gotta have to, you know, I mean, cause of course, uh, everything is somebody else's fault. Like it would never be, you know, um, that, you know, he came in 50 pounds overweight or out of shape. I mean, dude, I came into training camp 
in shape every single year because yeah. I knew that anything less was going to result in me fucking not being able to do my job. And I think like, you know, for you guys too, I mean, you know, when you went out, I mean, if, if a guy was out of shape or wasn't training or wasn't fucking carrying his slack, we consumed him. Yeah. You just fucking, I mean, we you ran out. Yeah. I mean, we took care of our own for sure. But, and that's, and yeah, but a lot of things that happened in the SEAL teams would be considered wildly politically incorrect and <clears throat> profiling to a degree. And that's how we treat ourselves. But then when something comes up that's very difficult or they can't figure out how to do it, we're the ones that they call. Yeah. So, well, I mean, but you know, the, uh, you need people like that. And I think, uh, part of the problem is, is that, you know, we have this idea that, you know, everybody should be equal and everything should be, it's not. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's nowhere know. near that egalitarian yeah. for sure. And, and you know what, and it's a, it's a sad realization, but I mean, you know, shit, like you've got to do a, a job that only a small percentage of the population ever gets to do. I was fortunate. I got to do a job that a very small percentage of the population and it's not for everybody. And you know what, there'll, there'll be people that think they can do it and still can't yeah. do it. And you know what? I'm always like, dude, dude uh, and people ask me about it. I'm like, at the time, it didn't really seem like that big a deal. Yeah. Because everybody I knew was doing it. You were surrounded by people with the same job. And they're like, this yes. is just what we do yeah, on Mondays. This is what we do. Yeah. yeah, yeah on, on Mondays and then on Tuesdays. Yeah. And then, on the, you know, the off season comes and we all go hang out. We go places and these are all your friends. Yeah. So it's really not that big a deal. And, um, you know, and then you get out and you realize maybe it is a little bit bigger. It's a deal. different universe for sure. Luke, last question. Alright, so this is kind of just off the top of text and I are going back and forth. Uh, with how's the audio? How, uh, how's the audio and everything going? Like the audio is good, the cameras are good? People are saying, I mean, a couple guys are having audio and video issues. I, I got an email from a guy that said he had to jump off because the audio was so bad. Yeah, I heard that, but I had to, I sent one out and people are seeing the same. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it, maybe it's his computer, we're going to find out tomorrow. Okay. But, uh, well, this, this is really our, you know, our dry rub, our first yeah, time no, out. No, I mean, we have this whole thing planned. This is a nothing has gone wrong so far. So, but uh, going back to the, the demands of the jobs of military, military elite, what are the thoughts on like, PEDs, performance enhancing drugs? I mean, it, being that in our culture, just normal society, it's frowned upon. But I would think that if, if I were a soldier whose physical preparedness and abilities, my life and my family's life, my country depended on it, I would be more than willing to. Do anything that would enhance. You mean like, um, like Captain America? Yeah, basically any sort of Captain America. Well, my favorite was uh, Captain America was one hundred percent an advertisement for performance enhancing. So you're a skinny geek who can't do this, and we're going to put you in this chamber and, and inject something that some German scientist has created, and then next thing you know, you're going to be jacked, you're going to be fast, and chicks are going to want you. I'm like, holy shit! Is this this is like everything that like the Olympics and all these other things are, are, are going against. So um, I don't know. I mean, in terms of uh, performance training and that, I mean, you know, if the opportunity is to be the best you can, be all you can be, right? I got no problem with it. <clears throat> uh, I just think you have to be careful. And I think the reason the military is hesitant to actually put guys on specific protocols is not because what would happen when they're on the protocol, but because I think the guys would have a really hard time getting off the protocol <laughs> when they were told to stop. Because guess what? You have type A personalities. Performance enhancing drugs work. <laughs> so when you see an improvement in your performance and then the doctor's like, hey, cool, no more for you. Well, I think the worry is that it's more of a psychological attachment. Yeah. And then they would go unsupervised yeah. and do that stuff, which is 
from my understanding, wildly more dangerous if you're relying on Google to get your information, at least for some weird website or some forum. Yeah, whereas from the military, I mean, they could they could easily do it. They could control your, they could do testing every every day if they wanted to, blood or urine, whatever it is. They could well, tax sellers. Yeah, and they could they could dial you in completely. And and again, I think the concern is, and I have no problem with it. I agree. Like, get as strong as you can, be as hard to kill as you can. The military worries about well, what about when the days of you doing that are gone? Or more importantly, I think what uh, everybody and even the NFL is so worried about is public's perception. Um, yeah. That, you know, like the NFL is, a, uh, is an entertainment company. They're a media company. And they spend billions of dollars convincing you that this is weaved into the fabric of American society. And like the last thing they want is a negative image. I mean, Roid rage? Dude, let me tell you, uh, I watch guys get cut and basically get burned out of the NFL for having a, a DUI. Um, you know, I mean, it's like... Uh, you can pretty much anything can go down as long as it doesn't make us and have give us a black eye. I mean, you give us a black eye and they're gonna fucking burn you yeah. out. And that's just that's the nature of the job because at the end of the day, like fuck. I mean, the, you know, public perception and what people want to do and you know the tax dollars and this and you know you got a bunch of fucking chicken shit people in Congress and in the Senate who uh, you know have never served a day or never done anything in their lives, but yet they want to fucking have a Senate Oversight Committee because they don't really want to talk about the important shit like uh, a budget or um, you know, fixing all the other social problems we have going on in this country. So what do they want to do? Then they want to vilify and say, hey, you know, it's performance enhancing and sports is what's wrong with America. I mean, it's, it's fucked up, dude. Concur. Concur. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we'll go a little training question here. Uh, shoot, I lost it. Okay, so Andy mentioned earlier that uh, your, phys your physical training pre-GSW at the command was drastically different than your training afterwards and today. Uh, knowing what you know now, who you know now, what you've learned, how would your training look to prepare you for the type of work you were doing? Would it look any different? It would look exactly like it did after I got shot. It would, because before that, it was... When I got in the SEAL teams in 96, like, nobody would talk to you because you're the new guy. And you'd see a jack dude going into the gym. So like, oh, okay, cool, I guess we go to the gym. And you would watch him do his chest and tries, and you're like, all right, Monday, Justin tries. I'm in. Tuesdays, back and by. So then after a while, you'd see a dude running on the beach. You're like, oh, let's go run on the beach. So it was. So there was no direction and no, no nothing. We used to do it on Fridays. But this is pre-war, right? Yeah. Okay. This is when we just sat around and talked about how badass we were going to be and how much <laughs> we were just going to stomp everybody. And, and then the, uh, the, the favorite is the, um, the only guys that had any legitimate steel were like Vietnam guys. Yeah, they were like 68 years old and completely senile. <laughs> yeah, with just massive amounts of tattoos all over their body. It's awesome. And generally handlebar mustaches that needed their own zip code. But like, it, was, it, was, it was one of two things. It was the bodybuilder or the triathlete. Like that was kind of the options when I first got into. So you were wearing a speedo or spandex? Yeah, and so I would I lifted and then I would run. Like the classic SEAL PT is a run, swim, run. Run for a mile, swim for a half mile, run for a mile. And on Fridays we would do grinder PTs. We would all get around and do flutter kicks and push-ups and like, <laughs> so ridiculous. But again, when we went out into the desert, in my first two platoons, I just had a vest on. I didn't have plates. They weren't wearing plates in NOM, which is where all of our tactics came from. I would wear plates when we did CQB, like the clearance stuff. And other than that, you're just out there with like your nice Blackhawk zip-up vest. <laughs> it was a different world. And 
if I knew then what I knew now, I would uh, my entire program that I follow would be based off of functional movements. I mean, it would just be off well, of complex. Well, you remember the program we wrote for you? Yeah. Was like, hey, I want to fucking play like an outside linebacker, fucking and try yeah. to crush people, which looked like uh, lift heavy weights and sprint your fucking ass off. Remember, we do all those uh, uh up, all those like Tabata uphill oh, and shit, yeah. treadmill. And, uh, and all that sprint stuff. I but I mean, you remember the late 90s? It was like, get in the gym and jack steel for three hours on your triceps. Yeah. You know? Or go for a beach run. Like, there was not a lot of... Well, we had a... Yeah. You know, I, I was pretty lucky. I, mean, I had a strength coach named Kyle Rice, who, um, you know, we know as the Rice Paddy, because uh, he was like... I mean, I'm not going to tell you why I call him the Rice Paddy. He'd probably be uh, deemed as... Episode two, perhaps? Nah, probably uh, <laughs> non-PC, but uh, we were, you know, he, he was going to sneak attack us until we called him Rice Paddy. And um, he uh, was probably one of the best strength conditioning coaches I've ever had, uh, but also one of the more difficult people I've ever had to deal with in my life for the mere fact that he was pretty highly emotional and extremely fucking bitter. But, but see, uh, you had strength and conditioning coaches. Oh, yeah. We did not. Dude, so 1996, 97, we are doing metabolic conditioning. Yeah, and but honestly, you guys were way ahead of us. Oh, yeah. no, dude, we, we Olympic lifted, we sprinted, we ran, we did plyos, we did metabolic conditioning. That's because you guys knew what was coming. Yeah. Like, you knew, like, okay, this is what we need to do to get good. Get shit. We you didn't guys. have strength and conditioning coaches as SEALs, like, where Josh Everett works at, at Group 1. Didn't exist. I don't think that existed until, like, 2000 and... I don't think that building was commissioned until 2008. So I mean, like as far as sport versus the, I mean like you guys were wildly ahead of us. Now it's like they get guys in training. There's a dude monitoring and observing the training and like applying thought to it and an SQT and when they get to a team. Dude, that, I mean, you guys were wildly ahead of us in the strength and conditioning game. Well, yeah, I mean, because strength and conditioning started in the NFL. I mean, the very I first, doubt it. Yeah. The first string condition coach. I mean, that shit was in the NFL. And then uh, what's been what's been cool is a lot of it's you know really trickled down towards the SEAL teams. Whereas I mean, most of their performance coaches are you know had some stint in college in the NFL. And I think the guy who was at the Eagles was the head guy at Damnick and you know Deb Brew. And so I mean, there's been a lot of co-mingling. And there's a lot of stuff that from the sport world doesn't apply, but the baseline philosophy and foundation is awesome. Well, it's all about ramping up human performance. Yep. And, you know, and then using that performance for what it's intended. And, uh, you know, I remember talking to you about, you know, well, explain to me the demands. And your demands sounded more similar to what then I did than triathlete. Oh, for sure. You're like, uh, we're going to have to walk about fucking 10 clicks. I'm going to have to dump my shit. Which yeah. is like, and then I'm going to have to sprint 50 yards into the fight and sprint 50 yards out. I'm like, how do we train for that? I'm like, well, I got something for that. I ain't got much for the triathlete. It's not on a bike. No. Yeah. In spandex. And speedos and a weird shaped helmet from the Tour de France. <laughs> <laughs> so, really? question. All right, all right, all right. So, next one is kind of along these lines, right? Oh, Jesus. So, this multi-part question. Oh, fuck. Who is this? Uh, this is our guy, Nelson. And there's like a couple of these. Basically, what it comes down to uh, is... One question. All right. Uh, thoughts or advice? Military athletes who follow power athlete programming, uh, looking to develop strength and short for speed, but also need to dominate the service PT tests, uh, which technically requires some sort of endurance portion, like two. Well, as he knows on the forums, uh, that they get interval run in the week and a longer run uh, on Saturdays. But what are your thoughts on whether or not that overall training should be adjusted, or should just having these be 
permanently. Well, like, like we've said numerous times, you have your GPP training and you have your sports specific training. If you need to train for something specific, you have to find a work it in. Uh, if, you know, if your PT is requiring you to do, be able to do a uh, hundred pull-ups and that's what you need to train for, then you need to work that into your training. I you, would make it like do it on Fridays, like you make it to, your test gate. You have to remember that what I'm writing in these training programs is a basic GPP. I'm working on speed, working on strength, plyos, all this other stuff. I don't know what the specific demands of each athlete are. There's just too many. So what I'm doing is I'm just writing a general strength conditioning program that'll help you meet your goals based off of the lane at which you're in, whether it be jack street, grindstone, field strong, basics, whatever it looks like. So case in point, if you need these things, you better fucking do them. Yeah. Or you better jump on the forums and ask me how the fuck to do it. And all you gotta do is tag me. And um, you know, if I could, unless I'm traveling or work or with the kids, I'm gonna answer. But you have to be able to be proactive. Just hoping, showing up and thinking like, um, you know, well, I lifted weights and did this and I wasn't ready to do it. And I'll be like, well, why did you think that you were ready for it? You know, like you have to be able to take this. I mean, there was never a point um, where GPP training was the end all be all. The general physical preparedness was always about apexing up the pyramid to a final goal, which, you know, if you've ever come to our seminar, we talk about working up to that game day. What is your game day? What is the test? What are you training for? And that's why our original tagline is, what the fuck are you training for? What are you training for? Because we need that. And so I think if your goal and you are a you know, tactical military athlete and you have a PT test that you have to crush, you better fucking go do it. And you better test it. Or you better go out and at least try to do it once on your off day. And if you suck, it's like running the, you know, running the obstacle course. Yeah, you got to go back and work on the obstacle you suck yeah. at. It's like, it, it, it's like you're not in the, in the weight room trying to design training protocols to help you get over obstacles, you're in there banging weights, you're jumping, you're doing all of your specific training, and you know what, you're going out and you're running the obstacle course. For military guys, you gotta, you, you have to, because I'm obviously intimately familiar with the PT test, make it a part of your training protocol. Make it like every two weeks on a Friday you do it, so you know where you're at, and then you can tune the knobs. And sometimes, when the PT test is getting ready to come up, you might have to back off on certain things and do other ones to satisfy the test, whether you agree with it or not. Yeah. It's a requirement of your job, and then get back on the training. Fucking cheat the test. You know, study for the test. Anybody yeah. that went to college, especially the military PT guys, it's a known, quantifiable test. Like, don't be an idiot and say, "Well, I was deadlifting, and then it didn't help my push-ups." Like, come on. Like, yeah. you, you got to take a little bit of responsibility in there as well, too. So, Andy, let's keep going down that vein. Uh, we got another question here from Jared. Any advice? Any advice for someone pursuing enlistment, hoping to book an EOD job later this year? Any tips about prepping for that school would be great. <laughs> <laughs> I, tell you I what, started laughing as soon as I heard EOD. I and all I could think of, Alex. Alex. Yeah. Oh. Here's the deal with EOD. Are those dudes have a job that you could pay me enough to do? Like when I see something that has wires sticking out of it, I'm like, oh, I'm good. Like EOD guy up. They, they, those guys have a job that is not only physically demanding, but the amount of book smarts that yep. is required is insane. And it's yep. like it's a never-ending pyramid. They could, and again, I've never been to the EOD course, so a lot of this I'm saying second or third hand. But like, there's the basic stuff, and then yep. there's the stuff Alex did, where you're talking we, chem bio, yeah, you're talking we, nuke, you're talking foreign or like he starts to describe dude, to me the way they do that stuff. I'm like, one of our uh, one of our good friends uh, was a EOD for. Um, for, for Dev Group, 
And he was like, you know, one of a handful of people that they could basically send anywhere in the world and could deal with anything. And I asked him once, I'm like, well, like, what's the range? He's like, it could be a fucking nuclear warhead or from a Russia, hand a hand grenade or some crazy chemical deal that we have to deal. And he goes, uh, and he goes to school. I mean, dude, we were at my house one day and he started pulling out stuff from underneath my kitchen sink and was like, you know, let me show you how we can fucking blow the whole neighborhood up. I mean, and he was like, you know, like, and that was part of his deal. Like they would, uh, um, you know, the Democratic National Convention and they would call him and he would go and be on standby. And if they found something weird, they would call him out and he'd be like, don't touch fucking anything. And I mean, one of the smarter dudes I know, um, the only part that made me nervous was his hands would shake because I'm pretty sure he was an alcoholic. And uh, he, he did take me out and teach me how to- scotch levels him right out there. <laughs> He's awesome. He, he did. Hey, for this guy, <laughs> don't be surprised at the level of academic that's fucking unreal. Skill and acuity that's going to be required. The EOD job is not only physically difficult, but those guys are like rocket scientists. Yeah, so be it. prepared for the, the volume of studying that's going to occur. Be prepared for a very dynamic and complex job. Yeah, because okay. I mean, those guys get attached to uh, active SEAL teams, so they got to be shooters. They get attached to army guys. They get yeah. attached all over the place. And again, like you said, the only way you can be competent against a nuclear device or a chem bio or a hand grenade, or whatever it is, is like you never stop studying. Their job is not necessarily as kinetic in the sense of pulling the, the, the trigger on a rifle or a gun, but goddamn, when you need those guys, you're like, get them in here! Yeah, so I, I would never walk up on an IED intentionally and try to disarm it. Like those guys do a job that I, I, can't, I don't have the vocabulary to describe the, the gratitude and respect I have for them. I mean, it's, you couldn't pay me enough. That no, was pretty cool. Uh, Alex did take me out to uh, the desert, and we actually went out there and blew up a bunch of ordnance, and he showed me how to pack C4, and I got to fucking clack them off. So I always uh, will thank him for the fact that I got to get up there and be like, biggest titties! It's a good life. It's it was good. Good John. I'm glad you experienced that. It was good. Yeah, I've experienced a lot of cool shit. All right, so how about uh, this little guy? Is there... This little guy? I wouldn't worry about this little guy. Uh, if there was one event competition race for test, you could do what would it be? Who's this towards? Who's this anonymous viewer? Uh, Who's this towards? Uh, both of you guys. Any event? I'm kind of like running with the bulls. I'm kind of like in the hunting without Luke. That R could be uh, running. No, that's a bad. Event. <laughs> uh, running with the bulls in Pembalo. Uh Yeah, yeah, Pembalone or Pembalone. I kind of would like to try to trek across the North Pole with that sled. <laughs> oh. uh, so, John, you're running with the bulls. I, you know what, Jared, uh, Jared Allen. Uh, actually took a red eye uh, to Spain. Uh, this was right before training camp. Didn't tell anybody. Literally got off the plane, got his white pants and his sash and old deal, and like had a few drinks, literally showed up. And like he's like, everybody's having a great time. And then all of a sudden this bell rang, and everybody got deathly quiet. And yeah. like, as the sun came up, all of a sudden he looked, and these bulls were running. And he's like, I ran a fucking 10 flat 100. I was fucking jumping <laughs> And like his, his story was pretty epic because he all of a sudden saw this bull like knock a dude off and he just ran. Uh, I, I gotta think like um, running to or uh, like running with the bulls is pretty epic. But if I could choose one adventure and uh, take Andy and like our whole crew and uh, do it, would be Oktoberfest at the Hofbrau Hut tent in, uh, in Munich. That was this probably, is doable. Yeah, especially because we have a certain. I know this is doable. Probably, uh, so so Luke went to teach a seminar uh, 
uh, during Oktoberfest. And so these guys went and had an epic adventure. And so Luke was talking about, like, we got to go, we got to go. So we booked a seminar. We got, like, 50 people, and I got to go. So we're on our way to the airport. We stop for gas. Luke takes his backpack out of the truck. And, like, you know, we're trying to rearrange stuff. We get in, we drive away, we're hauling ass. All of a sudden, I look over his shoulder and see his backpack. We loop it around. Somebody took his backpack. His passport was in. In, like, 30 seconds. In 30 seconds. So backpack gone. Passport gone. Target about and we're driving. <laughs> we're driving to the airport to go to Germany. He doesn't have a passport. I'm like, fuck. So I drop him off. I call Tex. And I'm like, Tex, what are you doing? He's like, nothing. I'm like, you want to go to Germany? He's like, I'm in. So Tex and I go to yeah, the so seminar. Like, when? And you're like, your flight's in two hours. Yeah, I call Kate. Yeah, I, I call Kate. And Tex is like, I'm in. And that's the great thing about Tex. He's just waiting on that call. And uh, we went to Oktoberfest. And like, we show up. And like, imagine a tent that's easily five to six football fields, maybe 10 football fields you could fit inside. They're huge. Maybe it's too big. I mean, they're fucking massive. And the bands are having a great time. And we go in and there's these beers that are like this big. Steins. Oh, they're huge. And like, we're over there like having drinks and having a great time. They're playing like terrible 80s music. And uh, we just had an epic adventure and drink beer. And, What's the celebration of? Uh, beer? October. Best. Like, <laughs> <laughs> But, um, I actually know almost nothing about it, but you, of course, hear it every time. Yeah, so it's, it, it was, uh, I had never been, and it was always one of my things to go. And if I had known, I mean, the problem is, it was during football season. Yeah. So I couldn't go. This was my first opportunity. But if I could plan one, uh, like, if we could, like, I, I, okay, so years ago, Rob Wolf got invited on this thing that was called a low-carb cruise. Where that doesn't sound fun. I know, I know, fuck, it sounds terrible. But, but, but all of these low-carbers got together, and this guy planned, like, a low-carb vacation. And did what? Pinched each other's fat with calipers? No, they, like, like it was basically, like, it was a, a cruise that they were all going to get on that, like, just didn't have lots of carbs. Where was the booze? Well, maybe they're all drinking, I don't know, tequila or something, right? There's but, no carbs but, and tequila. <laughs> yeah, there's no carbs and tequila. So, so Rob gets invited on this low-carb cruise, and Rob was going to be, like, you know, their fucking master of ceremonies yeah. or, like, they're king of he's his dad. Like, oracle. Yeah, he's, he's, well, he is the oracle. <laughs> Not and anymore. So, well, yeah, he's got, he's got LASIKs. And so Robbie, uh, like, they invite Robbie to go, and uh, he ends up fucking not going because he's like, dude, I don't want to be stuck on a boat with these guys. They're fucking low carbers, might have bad gas, and they're all talking about food all the time. <laughs> so Robbie doesn't go. And I always remember thinking, I'm like, man, like, if we could plan a, uh, like, a power athlete, at, like, a, a travel adventure, it would be like, we are going to go to Munich Oktoberfest on this date. Uh, this is our national, world, global power athlete. Well, this is the evolution of the symposium. We know this. Well, it, it is. I mean, we've had the symposium, which Andy was a special guest this year. Uh, but, like, that to me, if we could pick one place in the universe for one weekend to have the meeting of the power athlete, like the clans coming together, would be in Munich Oktoberfest. That would be to me, uh, mayhem, fucking uh, cars burning, fighting, battling. That would government, be governments yeah, being overthrown. That would be to me like Valhalla, you know, when you show up and they're like, you know, they, I mean, dude, it was epic. Like we ate, we drank, we had such a blast. Uh, the problem is, is uh, uh, you know, Texas great, but uh, he, you know, he gets a bunch of drinks in him, gets real quiet. I need somebody that's going to be just a, a, a firecracker. <laughs> I got a guy. Yeah, I got a guy. But, All right, so, so continuation of this guy's question. Um, and then he's curious, in, in your, both your expert opinions, uh, what's next for the fitness industry? Where do 
your gym's going to look like? What's fitness going to look like? Uh, I have, do you have no idea. On what the next trend is going to be? Uh, the one thing I will say is um, a meteor hits the earth, right? And it hits, splits into two things. This is a metaphor. No, it's not actually going to happen. No, it's, <laughs> it's, hits San Diego and hits Santa Cruz. So basically wipes CrossFit off the map. Right, so there's no more CrossFit HQ, there's no more Mothership, no more games, nothing. And all of a sudden, there's all these gyms, like 13,000, 12,000 gyms, whatever it is, looking around without any central Mothership to plug into. Uh, what happens? Nothing. All that will happen is you will have a collection of independent gyms like this, where people are showing up for community, they're banging weights, they're conditioning, they're competing, and they're having fun. And even if all of a sudden they passed a law and they outlawed CrossFit, you couldn't have a gym like this anymore. You know what people would do? They would drag their equipment home. They would put yeah. it in their garage. And you know what? They would train with their buddies on the, on the, every night and they would have community in the same way. Here's the thing. We are not going back to whatever bullshit we did before. People are still going to bang weights. The barbell and CrossFit, the best thing CrossFit ever did was they introduced the, the barbell to the world. The bar, I mean, what's amazing to me, it's kind of like fucking bacon. Like, I used to like go to these things and people would talk about bacon like it was this fucking new thing. And I always remember being like, I'm so sorry. My dad cooked bacon every Saturday for us. That's how I knew it was the fucking weekend. I'd wake up and it was cooking. And it was delicious. And it was great. And you know what, people are like talking about it like it's this like guilty pleasure, like, you know, going to a swingers fucking weekend. And I'm like, it's fucking bacon. It's like people talk about the barbell. I mean, turn on Facebook and people are like talk about you know squatting in the barbell as this life revolution or uh, uh, you know this, this revolution of life, and that's fucking great. But I mean, dude, we've been banging weights and we've been doing this for years because not only is it fun, it's uh, it's training, it's, it's everything we want. So I don't see barbell training and lifting weights and conditioning and getting fucking sweaty. I don't think people are ever going to go back to whatever the fuck they did before. Now, are people going to evolve their training? Are people going to start hybriding shit where now you're doing, you know, CrossFit, Olympic lifting, bodybuilding, powerlifting, and they're doing kind of a mix of them all. They're doing MMA, they're doing everything. I mean, are people going to become hybrid athletes? And that's already what they're doing. Yeah. And you know what? That's not fucking going away, like, at all. So I don't ever think that all of a sudden we're going to go back to, like, uh, a fucking Zumba uh, – I don't know, fucking Smith machine fucking workout. Like people aren't going to do that. I mean, as long as the quarter squat gang is out there on Instagram, people are fucking shaking in their boots that they're going to get videoed in a fucking shitty squat. Like to me, that is the best thing I've ever seen in this world. So I really don't see, I mean, the one thing though that, that I, I, I think we shit on unfairly was um, creating an aerobic base. And I, I'm guilty of this for years. Uh, I used to fucking pay zero uh, respect to creating aerobic base and doing some endurance work and really developing those aerobic uh, pathways. And I think that was a huge mistake of mine and uh, something I've gone back to remedy. And I think, um, you know, people are going to look at training energy systems equally. They're going to train that you know, glycolytic, aerobic, they're going to train the ATP and people are going to be strong, they're going to be fast and they're going to have fucking capacity. And uh, if, if people ever get to the point where they fucking stray from it, I think we we just have to have a reckoning, and um, I, I don't see our training ever changing. And I mean, we'll evolve as more technology becomes available to us. Things like you know, power dot and the form collar and other things that we're working on are just there to enhance technology, like like you know what like what train ropes added to us. So I don't see things tra uh, changing because there will always be a demand for big, strong, jacked motherfuckers that can move real fast and run through a wall. And if there's ever a day when that isn't cool, then fucking shoot me and uh, I'll have
I don't think I can add anything to that, Luke. I think it's pretty a complete, complete um, answer. So our boy Ignacio gives us some background on him. He's Jack Sheet, Neil Strong, doing nice with glory. Uh, he's got he's in on the form column since you brought it up. He's curious if you want to give or if you can give any insight on how this could fit into the programming once we go live with the form column. Yeah, I mean, what we've been talking with Trained Heroic is actually dropping it as a performance training metrics. And the idea that we will now be able to quantify not only how much weight is on the bar, but how much force you're actually moving into the bar and how much force you're generating against that object. So, you know, let's say we get into something and you're, uh, you know, supposed to hit a 3RM at a certain weight. Um, you know, based on that weight, you should know exactly maybe a percentage. I mean, we frankly, because it's such a new technology, we just don't fucking know. I mean, I, I know the speed at which the bar should move, what percentage, but in terms of your ability to generate force, I mean, there should be a direct correlation between the force that you apply to the bar and the speed at which the bar is moving. But unfortunately, uh, we don't have all these data points yet. So what I need is I need Train Heroic to basically make it a performance matrix. I need people to get form colors. I need to drop it into the training, just like we did with EMS. And I need to test the shit out of it so that I can get meaningful information. So when you ask me, hey, what's wrong with my squat? I'm like, great, what's the form color site? Well, shit, you're squatting a 3RM at, at 400 pounds and you're driving 410 pounds of force. This other guy over here <laughs> is squatting his 3RM and he's got 500 pounds of force and he's able to move this much farther. Well, you know, what is it about the training that's not making you as powerful? And uh, that's how I, I see the form color coming into this and allowing us to not only um, be able to see what you're doing for that top end strength, but also be able to find efficiency because, you know, let's say you're doing 95 pound thrusters, which is, you know, really handy, steady diet these days. 75. And uh, 75, assume the other pipe And he's driving 400 pounds of force into the bar that he's not being efficient. So I think we're going to be able to see for top end and also for efficiency. So I'm really excited for it. And, uh, you know, the guys from Form Color, when they approached me, were, you know, were so new in this. And Luke and I were really instrumental in driving this technology and I'm really excited to, to get it to market, get as many people's hands and selfishly get as many data points as I can to help you guys figure it out and also, you know, make a better experience for you guys because now it's going to allow you to give me meaningful information past just what did I hit for a three hour? So that's it. All right. I think this would be a, a good one to close on. So uh, Casey is asking, let's say, uh, and this is going to be for both Andy, you, and John. Uh, if you were Clarence instead of B-Rabbit, a.k.a. you missed your eight-mile window of opportunity. So, John, you didn't hit the NFL. Yep. Andy, you didn't make it through Buzz, which I don't even know if that's an insult to even think about. So, no, uh, sure. uh, where would you be now? You just want to say that, uh, you know, and uh, the eight-mile vlog where John talked about eight-mile moment struck a chord and it took some introspective time to figure out that he had missed his shot so he's a little bummed out. I was curious to think see where each of you guys would be um, if you were Clarence. I don't spend any time living in the past. Uh, a wise man once said, if you live in the past, you're depressed. If you live in the future, you have anxiety. And only those people that live in the present are the ones that feel content. And so I think... Um, you will beat yourself up living in moments that you can't change. Or constantly wondering what if. Yeah, fuck that. Because yeah, I mean, you spend your time wondering what if, like, you're, like you said, you're not in the moment. You're stuck in the past. Well, what if I had done this? I mean, if I hadn't made it through Buds, then I would have something else that I would be passionate about and I'd be pursuing that with 
the same intensity that I did throughout my career. And I would try to make amends with not achieving a goal that I had for my life, but I'm not going to let it define me. Well, the, well Andy, did you have, like, the, did you have any idea? Like, is your search trajectory you knew you would have gone? Like, like, sales or anything? No, like, it's, it's, like, it's all I wanted to do. I can't, I can't tell you what my life trajectory would have been had I not made it. So who knows? Like, like what I'm doing now with my life, all the skydiving and base jumping, I never had any design to do this professionally. Just showed up. I'm taking opportunities as you're, they present themselves. You're like themselves. Gump, just floating the fucking feather. Well, why do it any other way? I can't control the river, so maybe I should just pop in there and see where it takes me. You know, uh, uh, for myself, um, I was a good student in high school, and I, but I know there was no fucking way I was going to Berkeley. Um, my validatory in my high school didn't get into Berkeley. And, uh, you know, there's a good chance I, I, I know I wouldn't have gone there. Because you didn't play O-line, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I was fortunate in that um, I was a pretty good football player, so it allowed me to go on a track at which I probably couldn't have got there naturally. I mean, let's say just as a student. Uh, so if I hadn't played football and hadn't had not my opportunity, uh, who knows where I would have been and what it ended up. But here's the thing. The reason I wrote the eight-mile talk and I wrote that eight mile blog wasn't for you to reflect on your life and feel like you were fucking sad because you missed your eight mile moment. It was about being able to live in the moment and realize the eight mile moment is happening. So there was a, you know, and I talk about my, my deal where uh, all of a sudden I'm so far down the depth chart, they're going to be on that fucking first page. And uh, you know, that guy, you know, Doug Rosinski goes in and fucks up and all of a sudden Andy Reid starts looking around and I just happened to look to his video, you know, look to his right and saw me and was like, didn't you just be a starter? You know, that shit. And I'm like, yeah, like, fucking you drafted me. I was a fucking starter last year. Yeah. And then I you know, get in there. And as I'm walking in there, I was able to assess that because I live in the fucking moment and I know the magnitude of stuff. I knew that if I came in and I did the job that was needed, that it was going to fucking play out well. And yeah. that was my immediate rise up the depth chart. Well, and I ended up going in and playing great. And then, we went to another drill. That guy fucked up. I went in there, did fine, and I was the starter from then on the rest of my career. And uh, that deal of what I wrote that blog about and what you have to take from it is not to sit back and reflect and be like, oh, I fucking missed my eight mile. It's about your what's eight mile one? is what's the next one. There is no one eight mile. I just gave you my one eight mile that was pivotal in my life. Now, if it didn't play out, then I'm looking for my next eight mile. But what it is is, is being in the, in the moment and aware of what's going on around you, not having your fucking head in your ass, not like, you know, not being fucked up on painkillers or high or drunk or, 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 you know, emotionally fucking unavailable because your girlfriend is, is, you know, having a bad relationship or this, I mean, all this other bullshit, like being conscious in the moment to where if greatness presents itself, I'm there to answer the call. And then on top of it, doing the body of work that presents to put myself in that fucking situation. You know what? Like, if your uh, job looks like I go to the cubicle every day and I sit at the computer and I never put myself out there, is your eight mile ever going to present itself? Nope. No. You got to go out there and put yourself in a situation. You know, does Andy all of a sudden, I mean, if Andy never strapped on a squirrel suit, would that eight mile ever present itself? Fuck no. And nor am I able to forecast where it's. Yeah. Taking me or where it's going to go. You, you know, you thought, I'm going to strap myself up like a fucking squirrel. I'm going to jump off a mountain. And you know what? Something cool might come with this. But you know what? I'm a lot cooler because I fucking did it. So I think uh, for you, fuck all that living in the past. Uh, depression's living in the past. Anxiety's living in the future. Live in the moment. And put yourself in a situation where you, you know, 
have potential to have another eight mile moment happen. And you know what? Maybe that eight mile moment that you missed out on was in preparation for this one. So you wouldn't fuck it up the second time. Like I always think of that one, like, like what if all of these things were just a series of, of, of trials and tribulations to kind of help you so that when you show up, you're globally aware or just conscious enough to be like, fuck, this is my moment. And you know what? And then I'm gonna go crush it out the box. I mean, dude, I, I, I met a guy who, uh, who told me his eight mile moment was meeting his wife. And he, he read the blog and he was like, he, um, he, he, he told me that we were at a seminar and he's like, man, all of a sudden I read your blog and I was like looking for my eight mile moment and I spotted this pretty girl. And you know what? I thought to myself, I'm like, I either have the opportunity to go talk to that girl and see what happens or walk away and always wonder what should happen. And the guy went and talked to the girl and ended up marrying her. And he's like, my wife was that eight mile moment. And I was like, fuck yeah, that's a, a great eight mile moment. Um, I hope everything works out and you live for, you know, married for 50 years and have a bunch of kids and a wonderful relationship. Uh, you know, uh, you know, if you get divorced in a year, don't call me. I'm sorry. But, um, cause it wasn't your eight mile moment. It wasn't your eight mile moment. <laughs> and, 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 and you know what? Like, that's what it was like in that moment when literally I saw Andy Reid look over and he couldn't turn his chin that much because he had double chins, but he was like, looked over and he saw me. And like I looked and I was like, I knew exactly what he was fucking going to do. And as I strode into the line, I knew that this was my chance. And like, I think you as an individual have to see those chances when you do them, you fucking crack the bones, suck the marrow out and fucking win. But you'll never see the chance if you're not in the moment. Yeah. Or you don't put yourself out there. And grind it. You never, know, like, what, like, like what happens if I had sprained my ankle? What happens if it was too hot and I got heat exhaustion? Or, or what if I was in the back? So I always think about this one. What if I was in the back, hanging out in the back, dicking around, getting water, and he didn't see me? I mean, he looked around and saw me and was like, hey, didn't you used to start for us? That was a year ago. I was like, Jesus. Yeah, it's got four months ago. Yeah. <laughs> they were getting fast. The NFL's got a short fucking memory. They, they got bad amnesia. But you know what? Standing up, being present, being part of it, not in the back, kicking a can and being, mm -hmm, so sorry. you know what? Fuck it. I'm here to do a job, and I'm going to do the best job I can at putting yourself out there and then being ready. How many people have the eight mile present themselves and aren't ready? Like fuck, like like that's or the thing. Or aren't looking. Yeah. Because their head is directly up their ass. Yeah. So that's it. That's all I got. Well, I think that's I mean, we've got a few other questions. It's just kind of like mm, well that doesn't fit the flow, but you I mean, can't say that's any, the last uh, question and then ask us another question. Do you have, do you have any closing? No, uh, um good uh, test run. You know what? Uh this was great. Um, you know, the only thing that we're missing back here is like a TV or a whiteboard. Well, because uh, if we actually, if there was a whiteboard and Andy and I could go back here and diagram shit, we'd probably be here for two weeks. But, um, you know, in terms of basically uh, going and finding this amazing table, which Luke and I found, and uh, getting to sit here and hang out with one of my favorite people in the world, Andy Stump, and uh, get to talk to you guys and, you know, let you guys see a little slice of who I am and Andy. And I uh, invite you into uh, in our in our world. And you know, the only sad part is you don't get to see our uh, fairly aggressive text messages that we shoot back and forth. We can screen grab. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> uh, but you know, like um, really, uh, yeah, like I talked about earlier, which seemed like ten minutes, but it's been a couple hours. Really, talking to Johnny live, and really this first one with Andy was about you know um, trying to take a little bit of what I do at the seminar and what Andy's done over our time and just be able to, to give it to you guys and really get to see who you are and get some, you know, organic you know, information and answer some questions and let you see about who we are. And uh, I'm pretty excited and, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, there'll be a few more of these in the future and 
you know, we'd love to get Andy back. I mean, who knows? We might make him a permanent fixture on this thing. He's got a good flow, and you know, obviously, he's done some shit in his life. Be careful. So, <laughs> don't ask. Uh, but um, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, this will definitely be on YouTube. And uh, until next time. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to choose from a number of programs to meet your specific performance goals. And if you like to break a mental sweat too, visit academy.powerathletehq.com and become a real stakeholder in you or your athlete's success. Until next time, 